This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Man, we got a good one for you today. Ooh. We are going to be taking on um, what may be the cause of the Trump-Bernie Sanders uh, escalation, the takeoff. Why are they all doing so well? Well, maybe it's because middle America is struggling. Today we'll be talking about how America's coastal cities left the heartland behind. Uh, it's an article by Brian Feldman, and it's it's a very interesting I think uh review of what has happened to the to the uh Rust Belt and to Middle America, the middle of I mean the flyover America. There's a lot of discontent in the flyover America. All of these states that don't seem to feel represented, that feel like they've uh, lost their anchor businesses, their anchor identities, their their job markets, everything. So we'll be talking about What's going on in middle America that might be driving a lot of people to love a Donald Trump who's going to go in there and just break up regulations and quit doing trade deals like NAFTA and all the things like that. So we'll be talking about that in a few minutes um, along with – we've got a lot of great stuff coming up on the show. We'll be talking about quackery in the third hour. Yes. Everybody needs to know – you know, you've all had somebody try to sell you some – Crazy, you know, copper bracelet. That yeah, some trick that fixes Alzheimer's or something. Yeah, well, the old Alzheimer's bracelet. <laughs> You'll see them on late night TV. People are like I wear this, and all of a sudden my arthritis is gone. You're like, Ever since I started having yeah. my wrist turn green with a ring of green around it, but some people swear by it. Oh sure. So you don't know if it's a placebo type situation. And magnets. Or, yeah. Have you ever had the magnet yep. pitch? Crystals. Yep. Crystals. Yeah. Crystal meth. Stuff like that. Not meth, but... Oh, is that a different crystal? The power of crystals. Yeah. Yeah. Crystals. Yeah. Like, I think that was a space show you saw. No, no. Like, Somebody's, someone came to my yeah. door and said, hey, I have some crystals. Um, Do you need them? Yeah. I, I didn't buy Get them. Get your crystals here. Sunday. That's funny. So we're going to be talking about quackery. We're also going to, uh, in hour two, going to get into the libraries. What's, what happens to libraries in the digital age? Do you need them? I mean, for us, it's just a free place to check out videos. Yeah. yeah. I, I take my, my kid over there and get some books. Oh, you still read books? Well, he does. Yeah. I read my phone. <laughs> I read phones. He reads books. Yeah. What's going to happen to uh, the library system? And you go over there and people are just surfing the web at the library. (laughs) Is anyone reading a book or are we just going to play with the computers and they just dig it on the – but it's an access point for the web for people who don't have access. Right. And that's – I mean maybe that's what it just needs to be is a big access hub. Yeah. With the reference surrounding it. I mean I just go to the comic book section. Someday there will be – the federal government will just hand out iPads. I hope not. They you know they they already have access to them. If you get one from them, they'll they're already break the security and they'll just watch you all day long anyways. We need a that's right. Big brother. We need we need um we've got to do a story on how the internet is a right 
Having access to get online is a right, not a privilege. I tried to chase that down at one, but there's a bunch of That's... different companies, but they weren't. Uh, no, yeah, and a lot yeah. of people don't want to step out into that one yet. Well, no, the, they're they're trying to spread it across areas of the world that don't have the internet. Yeah, but in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to I'm trying to find someone about inside the United States. Yeah, we have infrastructure. Why can't we make it like a public utility? Give everybody access. Yeah. Then, then you don't have to go to the library to get the access. I mean, there's enough. Or, old... or what do they call it? Super Wi-Fi. Oh. Where they just blanket entire cities in yes. Wi-Fi. Yes. Instead of you have a little hub here and a hub there, but like the entire city. And they're trying to do it with some of the television signal spectrum that uh, when they went from analog to digital but, a few years ago, they're trying to yeah. use that to spread it. And the TV networks are like, we don't want to give this up. And but the minute you do I'm, that, then it becomes a utility and then yeah. the government gets its hooks. And on. then it's garbage. Yeah. Garbage. Instead, of, garbage instead of competition to make it better. <sighs> it's always about government. But go. first, let's get to the headlines. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Thanks, Matt. Hillary Clinton has just declined to participate in a proposed debate moderated by Fox News in California after her opponent, Bernie Sanders, pushed for it and said that he would participate. As we have been said previously, we plan to comp- uh, compete hard in the remaining primary states, particularly in California, while turning our attention to the threat of a Donald Trump presidency. We believe that Hillary Clinton's time is best spent campaigning says her director of communications in a statement. It doesn't serve any purpose for her to debate anymore. Right. Why would you? Yeah. You've already won it. But it makes her look bad, and then conservatives can say she's hiding. You're and a Bern- chicken! And Bernie can say that she's hiding, which totally. she does. Uh, a U.S. House of Representatives Oversight Committee announced that the head of the security for the U.S. De- uh, U.S. Transportation Security Administration was removed from his position on Monday. The panel did not give a reason for Kelly Hogan's dismissal, but had a hearing about the long lines at security checkpoints on May 12th. But uh, members of the committee had been critical of the recent bonuses that Hogan had received. Mm. So the job wasn't fulfilled when people got bonuses. Yeah. Sounds like a good system. Two weeks after a story surfaced on the tech website Gizmodo, quoting an anonymous ex-staffer who alleged that members of Facebook's trending topics team had a bias against showcasing conservative interest stories, Facebook's general counsel said in a statement that the investigation had found no evidence of systematic political bias. Uh, He goes on to say in a statement that the data analysis indicates that conservative and liberal topics were approved as trending topics at virtually identical rates. Facebook also said it's making improvements to trending topics, including updating terminology and its guidelines, refresher training for all reviewers, and Mm. additional controls and oversight of the trending topics review team. You make one little mistake. Or just announce the mistake. The alleged mistake. And all of a sudden, you've got to back, walk back everything. And also, according to a new survey by the marketing research group Mintel, 82% of Americans who eat hamburgers think the meal is a good source of nutrients. <laughs> Mintel reached out to 1,700 Americans who had ordered the dish in the last three months and found that Americans happen to be very pro-burger. 62% of respondents said they like the sandwich, including millennials who tend to be more health conscious than other age groups. But there is bad news. While burgers are a good source of protein, iron, and and the vitamin B12, the cons outweigh the benefits, especially because of the fatty meat, sugary ketchup, and refined grain buns involved. Three, uh, this is out of Time magazine. The World Health Organization has additionally reported evidence that processed meat and red meat causes cancer. Blah. But hey, we're pro-burger. Go burger. I'm more pro-sugary ketchup. 
Yeah, they started describing the bad parts. I'm like, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, I like me some sugary ketchup. <laughs> Honey, pass the ketchup, please. You know, um, it's we can't be pro anything anymore. Everything's bad for you. Well, yeah. Kale. We, we live in it. Well, kale causes uh, some kale causes kidney stones. Yeah, that's why I don't go near the stuff. Don't go through. It'll kill you. Hey, um, we got a lot to talk about. Bernie Sanders is just—he's not giving in. He's uh, let's just do. You talked about the the uh, debate Hillary Clinton doesn't want to be a part of. Yes. Here's Bernie's uh, take on um, on Clinton not debating in California. She is really insulting uh, the people of the largest state in our country uh, who have a right to hear a vigorous debate on her views. So I am disappointed, although not surprised. Hmm. Does he does he not know he's done? He's got to be done. I mean, he doesn't get that. Would you pledge to Democrats that you're going to campaign for Secretary Clinton? First of all, my focus right now. Uh, is to win the Democratic nomination. But will the end you of the campaign? day, excuse me, at the end of the day, <laughs> we hope to win a majority of the pledged delegates. Yeah, NBC played that up as fiery interchange between that, the reporter and Bernie Sanders. Is that fiery? I don't know. It's she just, interrupted him. Yeah, he just wants to be heard. <laughs> it was fiery. But um, he did. He did make a comment about the convention possibly getting a little messy. It's going to be messy. You know, democracy is not always. Nice and quiet and gentle, but that is where the Democratic Party should go. So you think that you think the convention could be messy? So what? A democracy is messy. I have, every day of my life is messy. But if you want everything to be quiet and orderly, and allow you know just things to proceed without vigorous debate, that is not what democracy is about. Hmm. Wow. So do you find anything wrong with those comments? Well, that it, it's going to be messy. Well, it reminds me of. You know, in the Rodney King verdict, when they say there's there's going to be riots, okay. There's if it doesn't go the way they would expect it to go, there's going to be riots. Now, is he saying it's that? subtle? It's like he's it's, saying it won't be orderly; it'll be messy. Does that conflate to riots? Because Trump no, said there'll be. I don't know. Riots. I don't Trump know. I riots. don't think of it as riots. I just think it's going to get. It's not going to be as clean as some as people Hill would want it. To be. Some people in the media, as Bernie Sanders goes on to say, that have taken that and turned it into there is going to be unrest in the streets and all this oh, kind yeah, of stuff. Sense that. And he's like, well, go play what clip, clip three. The media often takes words out of context. The context of that was that democracy is messy, that people will have vigorous debate on the issues. Will the convention be messy? Well, of course it will be. But everything, that's what democracy is about. Well, so... But you don't ask, will it be messy? Now we just keep we just keep yeah. You get the same problems. answer. So, Bernie, when you say messy, what do you mean? That's what you ask. Yeah. And he would say he already said vigorous debate. He's talking about the process yeah, it'll at be the a, convention. A highly heated debate won't be orderly about the platform. It's not going to be like. But he's he's sending a subtle message. Is he? His, well, not so subtle. He's sending a message to his people. We're fighting all the way to the when he, debate. When he, to the, when he said messy, he was st- at the beginning of it, he was talking about Nevada and oh, what was? happened there. Yeah. And he goes, those things should not be ignored. And then he brings up messy. Mm-hmm. And so people went, whoa, huh? Right. Bonfires Here, in, the, in, in Cleveland? What's happening? And meanwhile, I don't think Hillary's paying attention to the guy. No. Because she's already 
on to uh, to Trump. Listen to her comment about Trump and running a casino. What little we know of his economic policies would be running up our debt, starting trade wars, letting Wall Street run wild. All of that could cause another crash and devastate working families and our country. Trump economics is a recipe for lower wages, fewer jobs, more debt. He could bankrupt America like he's bankrupted his companies. Two of them. I mean, ask yourself, <laughs> yeah. how can anybody lose money running a casino, really? I, I sense a new political talking point. Except the, the comeback is how could anybody lose money running the government? Right. Are you kidding me? Yeah. It's nothing but money. And we're losing money at it. This is going to get crazy, which is why I think our guest today is going to shed a lot of light. There's a lot of people that are angry. And they're tired of this. Well, especially because she, she's, making, she's made millions as a political appointee, as an elected official. She re, you know, once she retired from the Senate, she, was able, she and her husband were able to somehow make $100 million. That's crazy. I mean, it's okay. Go make money, but $100 million? Plus, did you hear about McAuliffe? He's in trouble. In Virginia? Virginia's governor and a really close associate friend of the Clintons is in trouble now. He's under investigation with the FBI about improper fundraising. Now, the Clinton Foundation is involved, but not under investigation. But the McAuliffe, the governor of Virginia, is involved in the the, uh, Clinton yeah. Foundation, so it's there, and there was a, there was some connection between somebody that was giving donations to the Clinton Foundation, that but also gave donations to McAuliffe, yeah. but maybe an illegal donation. Hundred plus people apparently have donated to both the Clinton Foundation and uh, McAuliffe's campaign. Hmm. Weird, because the Clinton Foundation has the majority of its donations are from countries out of country, I believe. Right. Interesting. Anyway. Yeah. <sighs> Crazy time, folks. It's uh it's it's politics. And there's there's a lot behind it. Our next guest, uh, Brian Feldman, we're going to go get him on the phone. He's going to walk us through an article that he wrote about what's happening to middle America. The reason the Rust Belt, the reason some of these uh uh, you know, these kind of industrial states that have been making money off of the railroads, off of uh, the coal industry, off of the steel industry, they're, they're suffering. These states are suffering. And they're suffering because, uh, alleged, according to our next guest, because of policies made by presidents of all parties over the past 30, 40, 50 years that uh, are changing the game. And uh, they're making it so, you know, living in some of these states isn't as valuable as it used to be. Interesting insight that might be behind what's driving a lot of the uh, anti-government and anti-establishment movement. Stick with us, folks. We're going to continue the discussion in just a few moments. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. 
You know, at the start of this year, the NFL announced that the St. Louis Rams would relocate to the Los Angeles, California, becoming once again the L.A. Rams. And the owner, E. Stanley Cranky, uh, has been pushing for this move for quite some time, seeking to capitalize on L.A.'s media market and therefore increase revenue. Right? Makes sense, right? Moving from St. Louis to L.A. in order to get revenue. This move, however, is one of dozens of examples that shows the current economic decline in many of America's Midwestern cities. While many of these believe it to be an issue of deindustrialization and trends in the free market, it may not be that simple. Our guest today, Brian Feldman, is a researcher, reporter with the Open Markets Program at New America. He says that the problem is actually a result of decisions made by presidents and lawmakers in both parties influenced by a handful of economists and legal scholars, and it has quietly altered federal competition policies, antitrust laws, and the enforcement measures over a period of the last 30 years. So why are all, why are all of these Midwestern cities seeing such heavy economic blows? Well, let's turn to our, our good friend Brian Feldman and his article, How America's Coastal Cities Left, behind, left the Heartland Behind. Brian Feldman, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, thanks for having me on. Great having you. I loved your article, man. You must have spent a year writing that thing. Uh, it, it is. Yes. It has got so much content, sure. but it's great. We need to. We need to kind of know the history. And, and you, you did it. You kind of focused your entire article, not entirely, but a lot around St. Louis. Why, why, why start with the whole, the kind of the history of St. Louis? Yeah. So there's a couple of reasons. I think in sort of Amer- the American mind, St. Louis has traditionally been sort of the gateway to the west um literally and figuratively you know there's the great arch there right um and even at the turn of the 20th century 1900 st louis was the fourth largest city in america and this is when we have the world's fair with this sort of just ornate fantastic celebration and st louis is really a hub of commercial activity as well as culture and that's why in my story I actually focused largely on the advertising community in St. Louis. I mean, which is – I had no idea it was that big. I mean, it was responsible for launching, you know, Coca-Cola brands and, you know, bringing Santa Claus to Coca-Cola, right. <laughs> which was a huge coup. But also, you know, a lot of the beer companies out there and, um, I mean, just major industries were using St. Louis – as their advertising hub, and it became a city where they had a lot of talent. It, it became the the mecca for advertising, right? Exactly. And what's really great about focusing on the advertising community to tell this story is two things: is first, advertising in and of itself is a sort of cultural experience. For people who work in advertising, you need to have artists. You need to attract talent from all over, and so that St. Louis had these um, people as well as other Midwestern cities is one thing. But the second thing, too, is the advertising industry stands as this really great proxy for all of the other businesses that were in St. Louis, because at the end of the day, advertising is really a service to help other businesses sell and distribute their products. And that all these people turn to St. Louis and what you could call the sort of literal 
breadbasket of America, you know, sort of shows us that here in St. Louis, there was sort of bountiful talent and industry for the past, you know, century. And that only started to change in the last 20 or 30 years. Mm. It's it was interesting to me. One thing I didn't realize is um, how how much over the years, even over the last hundred years, how much government intervention had been there to to keep money flowing to the cities. Uh, I mean, like banks, like uh, the the reserve banks that were located in 12 locations around the country. That was all designed to make sure that bigger outside organ or uh, the the money could stay in these cities. So the smaller city uh, business people couldn't be pressed out by bigger cities. Exactly. And so in my article, sort of the main reason I come upon for sort of these changes we're seeing is this dramatic interpretation and enforcement in our antitrust laws. And sort of what you were just saying, I just want to take a really short moment to explain sort of what these antitrust laws were originally and then how they completely changed. So um, 1890, if you you go back 100 or so years, this is when the first antitrust law passes, the Sherman Antitrust Act. And Congress, when they're debating this law, they end up looking to the Constitution for inspiration. And our Constitution, in its most basic form, is a document that aims to distribute and disperse political power. Uh, You know, this is through three branches of government. This is through having checks and balances, term limits. And all of this, of course, was in response to the complete and total power of the British. And in the same way that Americans have always been very distrustful of large political power, They sought to create the antitrust laws to distribute economic power, and this was in response to sort of a handful of individuals who had started operating the large trusts of their day. Um, And so it was through that distribution of power that we see all throughout America opportunity in many, many cities from Omaha to St. Louis to Sioux City instead of just being located in New York or San Francisco and Boston, like we're increasingly seeing today. That's it, isn't it? It's so the, the, those, the antitrust uh, legislation and, and laws and the Sherman Act and the um, Federal Reserve Act of 1913, these things kind of de- – they, they, um, they made it so that uh, there was access, equal access. You couldn't, you couldn't have antitrust. You couldn't – Go in and have big companies overwhelming the smaller organizations. But have th- those then, you're saying, within the last 30 years or so, have been reversed by Absolutely. politicians, by our presidents? Right. And, you know, the sort of interesting thing is that this is not just a Democratic issue or a right. Republican issue, but this was really a bipartisan strategy. And it was sort of a goofy alliance because you had these very radical left wing. Um, you know, economists who are working with libertarians, two groups we usually don't think of having a lot in common. <laughs> and um, what they end up doing is sort of completely reinterpreting these antitrust laws. So what, you know, we had just said before is that it's about distributing power, maintaining regional equity, ensuring that an individual has an opportunity anywhere, whether he or she is, you know, in the West, in the Midwest, in the South, to if he or she's an entrepreneur, to go and start a business. Um, 
what's happened is instead of that sort of emphasis on markets, which are human-made things, as being a political decision, these economists said, rather, the market is something that's natural or mechanical, and they decided that the thing that we really need to focus on instead is consumer welfare or efficiency. Hmm. So instead of it being uh, an, an equalizing power uh, tool, it became giving efficiencies to consumers. So I guess so. I, I guess in the end, we would supposedly pay less. Right, and we see that sometimes happening. But what ends up happening is probably far worse, and we end up paying more in other respects. Um, when we see a lot of these. Mergers. One of the first thing, of course, is that jobs are shed. Right. And um, you know, the larger the sort of combining firms, the more people that are displaced and out of jobs. And you know, another really important consideration is a lot of these companies that end up being bought out or that end up moving their headquarters. A lot of the community leaders, which lead these businesses or companies also no longer have as much influence or sway. Right. Or, you know, these individuals who really are the people who know their communities best, instead, uh, now what happens is sort of a, a distance um, CEO or owner comes in trying to interpret what a community needs, and oftentimes that doesn't always work out for the best. And, that's, and so talk to us about like what happened to St. Louis, for example, with all this deregulation and – I mean, I know a lot of it ends up being, in a weird way, focused on the airlines industry. Um, but it seems like, it, in a way, some of the deregulation in airlines industries has gutted the Midwest. It's gutted the access to businesses. And talk, just talk about how that, how it all plays out today for these, for some of these cities, you know, in Wisconsin, in. Uh, since in, in like uh, in uh, Cleveland or Cincinnati as cities, um, where else? Where else do we see this this kind of gutting of America? It's largely in these midwestern cities. Um, you know, Cincinnati and Cleveland are great great examples as well. And um, you know, sort of bringing it back to St. Louis, there's this really interesting fact where uh, 1980. So this is despite some of the offshoring of jobs and the loss of manufacturing. St. Louis, for instance, had, um, I believe it was the second largest car manufacturing city after Detroit. Um, they ended up losing all that. But even so, still in 1980, St. Louis had somewhere, some 20 plus Fortune 500 companies and their per capita income was 89% of that of New York City. So more or less the same hmm. today. What we see is St. Louis now only has nine Fortune 500 companies, and a sort of interesting, timely piece of news is that there was also, I think, believe it was yesterday or two days ago, um, the German company Bayer announced that it wanted to acquire Monsanto, which is one of St. Louis's uh, hallmark companies. So that might drop down to eight because that company would be headquartered in Germany now. But the other really surprising fact is that that per capita income dropped by 10%. So it's now 79% of New York City. And so largely what you had mentioned is the sort of deregulation of the airlines plays into this. And 
you know, I think a lot of people can agree anytime we fly airplanes, it's becoming more and more just <laughs> disorienting, right, right. harrowing experience. Um, and the other sort of secondary component of that, though, is that before all of these changes, airlines were in some ways seen as a common or public good as a way to connect businessmen, businesswomen, uh, community leaders to other parts of the city so that they could travel and do their jobs today. Um, and the statistic is sort of scary, but of the largest metropolitan areas and regions, either one or two airlines has complete control and dominance over the routes um, that those customers fly, which not only results in higher play, uh, prices, but also less choice as to where individuals can fly to. So it, it's hard because if you know somebody in, say, Cincinnati wants to try to get the next flight out to New York to meet with somebody, there's not going to be as much availability right. as there are from somebody coming from Boston, San Francisco, uh, or even New York. Wow. In fact, in your in your report, you said in 2014, only 500 aircraft took off and landed daily at Lambert Airport, which is um, in St. Louis, right? A, fr- a fraction of all of the all-time high of 1,400 in 1997. So about a third of what was going on in 1997. Um, moreover, the airport serviced only seven, 1,176 international flights a year, down from 3,800 uh, in 2002. So the airline deregulation, um, the bank deregulation, all of this is – it's impacting and it's probably unduly impacting the inner parts of America, the inward heartland. Let's take a break. More with Brian Feldman when we come back, trying to understand what may be behind the Trump phenomenon as well because, you know, white middle America, um, they're jumping on the Trump bandwagon. Maybe this is – Maybe it has something to do with this. We'll stick with this, folks. More with Brian Feldman when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you lead a healthier, happier life. Stick with us, giving you the information you need. Townsend Show. Hey, so uh, America's coastal cities seem to be booming, you know? You get in your airplane, if you live in the coast, fly over America, get to the other coast. You don't even have to deal with any of the space in between. The problem is, um, it's that uh, heartland, the Midwest, maybe the Intermountain area as well, it's struggling. And um, it might be what's behind some of the kind of anti-establishment politicking you see going on where three of the top – three of the final candidates of the three, two, are pretty much anti-establishment as far as changing everything. Let's mix it up. Let's change it. 
And Brian Feldman is joining us. Brian is a research reporter with Open Markets Program at New America. He previously worked for an education technology company in Ohio and uh, through Venture for America. And he's been his writing has appeared on BBC and uh, a bunch of other organizations. He's here talking about an article that he wrote. It really more is like a dissertation, Brian. Um, it's how America's coastal <laughs> cities left the heartland behind. But you've been basically teaching us that through regulation and um, a lot of different passing of laws and acts, the the United States was doing what it could to ensure competition. Especially and and kind of equal access to money, and and um, safe business practices for hundred hundred plus years. And in the last thirty years or so, the game has changed a bit with with deregulation, and it's it's been a bipartisan uh, maybe deal, right? It's been Republicans and Democrats doing it, and but in a, in an, in the end, it seems like, and what I'm hearing is, we we now have a lot of. Um, like you, I hear Donald Trump and others complaining about the trade agreements. So that would kind of be the international, um, the international uh, lack of jobs going outside of the country. But we've also had issues with loss of manufacturing, transportation issues have also been become a major problem. What do you? What else do you see is happening with Middle America, and why? Why really are people as angry as they are? So the other important thing I you know want to talk about quickly, and you had just touched on it, was banking as well. Um, banks are really, really important because they're the easiest way for an individual or entrepreneur to access capital to start a business. And so having these banks distributed across the country was a really great accessible way for people to get loans that they could then use to start their own businesses. Um, again, this was a 1994 law that basically deregulated the banking industry. And so, again, all of the banks and access to capital has now sort of shifted left and right to the coast. In Missouri, there's this really appalling statistic. Um, you know, 1980s, there were 630-plus community banks um, today, there's only 260. Wow. So that's a dramatic, dramatic loss. So imagine if you're somebody who is in a community trying to go out and start a business. Not only is that hard because your local sort of community institution is now either out of business or has merged with a larger sort of institution whose lender probably isn't as sensitive to that community, which it's serving. But it's really difficult for those individuals to have really any say in their community. And I think that is the really big central thrust of what we're seeing this election cycle, both with Bernie Sanders supporters and with Donald Trump supporters, is that there's this anger. And I think in some sense, the anger may be a bit misplaced because I think the at the root of this anger is a frustration with that institutions, whether it's a big government or whether it's a big corporation, that individuals are slowly losing control over these forces that now govern their lives. Right. And this, I argue, is largely the result of these dramatic changes that we've seen in the last 30 or 40 years 
and may add, very quietly changed um, that have completely altered sort of America's landscape. Hmm. Is it um, – I mean it's it's interesting too, by the way. Warren Buffett, one of the – the great businessmen of of ever really is is a midwestern guy, and yet I'm going to bet most of his holdings are on the coasts. Right, <laughs> right? Exactly. so he yeah. just kind of lives there and then commutes out, I guess. But the mm-hmm. other thing that was interesting to me is uh, is a big push in the media, right? So all a, a lot of the the midwestern folk feel like they're not even understood by the media necessarily. And instead, we hear the stories of the coasts again. Yeah, that's a great, great point as well. Um, you know, we've seen massive consolidation in sort of the media industry as well, where now it's more or less the sort of Washington or New York bubble. And anytime a sort of Midwestern newspaper comes out, people here, you know, in D.C. often say, oh, OK, that's sort of nice. But, you know, if we remember back, you know, 1980s, the president every morning received not only the New York Times and the Washington Post, but also newspapers like the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, hmm. all on, you know, sort of the death and briefing report. And now that's completely changed. And for these communities, that's also another really big issue, because, again, a local news organization is going to be able to best report on the community on which it serves. And so having, again, an outside interest that comes in and sort of uproots not only the sort of commerce and economic vitality, but also this sense of culture is really detrimental to a lot of communities. And as a result today, there's really very little that can be done to stop all of these changes we're seeing. What what would you say, uh, Brian, to these people that argue, hold it, it's just these states, these cities were behind. They just, I mean, Chicago, it's it seemed to be managing it, right? I mean, Chicago's a Midwestern state, yet aren't they doing better? I mean, are some states just playing this, this problem better than others, or... Um, or is there a, a flaw in your theory? So I definitely think that we've seen a very, very dramatic shift. And, you know, sort of the big thing people talk about is income inequality, which is absolutely an issue. But right. I would argue that the other secondary issue that is tangential to that, but which people haven't yet focused on, is regional inequality. And I think that we're absolutely seeing this. Again, if we go back... Only 30 or 40 years ago, looking at those per capita income statistics, which really is a measure of all of the sort of economic development of a region, all of those Midwestern cities, they were actually, if you look on a graph, it's it's really fascinating. They were all increasing and converging toward New York City, which was and has always been sort of America's best, um, you know, most Fortune 500 companies, et cetera. but ever since it's 1981, when you really look closely on the graph, you start to see it stops, and then it just starts to go down this line. And so, sure, there are some cities that have weathered the storm better than others. Chicago, for instance, um, you know, Pittsburgh is another city that in recent years has come back and rebounded. But we have to think beyond just Midwestern cities, also all of the small 
towns, heartland communities that once were a really sort of local and thriving place where anybody, if he or she wanted to start a business or to manage his or her own affairs, could go out into the community and Mm -hmm. not feel necessarily constrained by um, not only the lack of opportunity or choice, but also a sort of distant absentee owner dictating what that community can or cannot do. And you see the South as well, right? I mean, it's a it's they also seem to be struggling in many states um, for probably a, a variety of reasons. But one of the things I also find interesting is uh, we always talk about the I think it's called the blue wall. The Democrats kind of have this inherent supposed hold on all of these states, but the states historically are are many of the states you're talking about through the Rust Belt, some of the Midwest states. And um, it seems like in a way, a few of those might be more in play this year than ever before. And if if it's true, it might be exactly what you're stating, Brian. People have just had it. They've had it without with not having the opportunities that other uh, other states have had. Yeah, I think that's absolutely accurate. You know, we see Pennsylvania perhaps now being in play as a yeah. state, um, West Virginia as well. And really, like you said, a lot of other traditional Rust Belt or Heartland cities. And I really, really do believe that this strikes at this core sort of um, industry in issue here, which is that this is not just a matter of jobs leaving the U.S., for Mexico and a lot of the free trade agreements, which we've been hearing, you know, sort of in our political discourse over the last couple of months, but actually something that's happening domestically right before our eyes in America, which very few people are talking about, which is that we're seeing the complete sort of uprooting of cities and towns and businesses and sort of having those transplanted on the coast instead of letting them sort of bloom where they belong and where they've traditionally always been, which is throughout America. Yeah. Brian, what's, a, what's the solution? What should we be pushing for? What, what do we do? So in my piece and what I also work on is trying to revive and restore our traditional antitrust policies. And it's interesting because in some ways the antitrust policies, some people say they're sort of like antiques or they're time-worn, but I like to think of them as a really nice piece of China, you know, so perhaps it's in our, uh, you know, living rooms or mm-hmm. dining room storage unit, but if we take it out and look at it, we see, wow, this is such a beautiful, amazing tool. Why have we completely forgot about it? And so what we need to do is enforce those laws again in the same way that they were enforced up into the 1970s in having specific emphasis on antitrust is not only about seeing what is most efficient for the consumer, but also which what is the best way to distribute opportunity and to ensure that there are not large concentrations of power that favor a handful of individuals at the expense of arrest at the rest of America. Totally. I mean, it's it just is interesting because we, we live in a very systemic world and you change one implementation of one antitrust policy and you may not see a big change for 30 years. Then you see it gutting America. I mean it's – it is. It's interesting and, and sometimes you wonder if 
the politicians see it, right? Or if they're just too close to the trees, you can't see the forest for the trees. Well, Brian, we appreciate you. It's great insight and uh, – I think it does. I think it adds a lot of insight into what might be going on in Trump mania and in Bernie Sanders mania. Absolutely. Thanks, Thanks for having me on. You bet. Thanks for being with us. And keep keep writing. You just need to turn it into a book, Brian. Just turn that big bad boy into a book. You're already halfway there. Um, it's great stuff. Uh, again, the article's name is, is titled How America's Coastal Cities Left the Heartland Behind. It's just solutions, folks. It's ideas. And there's a reason, you know, why people might be willing to forego hiring a president that is perfectly smooth uh, and eloquent in their language simply because they're so fed up with government. And they need somebody in there or believe that somebody in there that's a true blue business person might at least give them a shot. Anyway. It's, it's, we're here to inform, here to give you some information. We'll take a break, come back, wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, folks. We're finding the good in the world and solutions to go along with it. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, I've said it a million times. There's something going on. There's something awry in this country that uh, is, that's you know, it's a burr underneath the saddle of America, and it's got the horse kicking. So we got to figure out what it is, and I believe Brian Feldman may be onto it. I call it just the gutting of America. If, if you live in certain places... Uh, you don't feel necessarily represented in the media, in the culture. You know, how many times have you heard people complain about Hollywood or the liberal media bias? And the liberal media might poo-poo that and Hollywood will poo-poo that. But the reality is who's complaining of it are the people in middle America. And if middle America is going to continue to be ignored – it's going to continue to create problems and uprisings. And I guess you could just call it racism. I guess you could just call it um, whatever, angry white people. But it's also they need to be heard, right? We, they need to be heard. And so we have to do something. There's something going on. There's a reason why uh, the, the political world isn't all that enthralled in a Hillary Clinton who really – seems the most qualified of the three, and yet also seems the most, you know, establishment and traditional. And then there's the crazy outliers that uh, seem to have the most energy and people that are passionate around them. And the reason they're passionate isn't necessarily because they're the most qualified, but because they're not establishment. So... Just understand what's going on. And if whatever edge you're on, whatever side of the game you're on, just let's try to understand each other. Let's at least hear what's going on in middle America. Let's hear what's going on in those people that uh, need minimum wage. Let's not just poo-poo everybody and get rid of the discussion. Let's understand. That's all we can do, understand. Then take it to the ballot box. Anyway, that's the first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. We will be back next hour, and we're going to be talking about libraries. What happens to a library when you are in the information age? Do you still need a building with books in it? 
Or can you just get a laptop or an iPad? Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find solutions for today with your problems of today. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the place where we give you the information, the latest, the greatest, uh, the tools from those in the know, we bring on researchers, academics to uh, help us understand, you know, the things that might matter to you. There's a million news stories. Not all of them matter to you. But there, there's some things that just make us say, hmm, for example, libraries. What's going to happen with libraries? Do we need them anymore? Honestly, do we need rows and rows of books anymore? Can't they all just be stored digitally now? Can't we all have access to the greatest libraries? We'll find out. We're going to be talking um, about what happens to libraries. Have they outlived their usefulness in the age of the Internet? Guess what? You'd be surprised. There might be some things you're not even thinking about when it comes to the need for a library. By the way, apparently they haven't outlived their usefulness. There's They've gone up. We've, we've Over the last... Uh, 10 years or so, we've added about a 1,000 public libraries around the country. Hmm. So I think it's just politicians needing a place to put their name. Is that what it is? I think so. They're doing something good for the community? Who's going to be against a library? Yeah, right. Right? It's like a senior citizen center. You build build a skate park and people have a problem because you're springing the hooligans in. But you build a a library, everyone's like, yeah, okay. Holy cow. We built – my city built a dog park. Ooh. Was which, there a fight? Which I think is kind of anti-cat, not to be – I don't want to start right. a fight, but what about cats? What about goldfish? What about hermit crabs? What mm. about what about the the pets that are not People like as well-funded? I don't know if you have a fight there. I don't. Yeah. But it's like – there's like – it's standing room only. Yeah. And, and then – And the problem is dogs are on all fours, so that like makes it even harder. Right. They got to teach them to stand. That and it turns into a minefield. Yeah. We don't go near the place. Just people – yeah, police your dogs, people. Come on. But then you know, people also have the nerve to complain about it. Mm-hmm. But if I – there's two parks we have side by side. What are they complaining about? The noise? No. Just no. that you're spending funds. OK. On dogs. On dogs. However, if you look at the other park that is the people park, mm. no one's there. I mean they're there, but – They're it, walking their humans. It's not packed. Right. Yeah. But next door, the dog park is always packed. It's crazy. Dogs. Dogs. What What about a fish park? They don't need to be walked. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You're so... They just swim around in their isolated tank that people purchase. You're a monster! Yeah, you said it. You're anti-fish. You always have been. Just more anti-pet. So we will get to libraries and I'm sure more engaging conversation about 
pets and animals. Dog parks. And dog parks. But first, let's get to the headlines. Terry South, what's going on around the country? Thanks, Matt. Virginia Governor Terry McCullough reportedly under investigation by the Department of Justice and the Federal Bureau of Investigation for $120,000 worth of campaign donations from a Chinese businessman. According to officials, the investigation of the Democratic governor goes back at least a year and seeks to determine whether the contributions violated the law. An attorney for McCullough told CNN that the governor wasn't made aware that he was the subject of the investigation, but that he would cooperate. Additionally, the investigation has roped in McCullough's involvement as a board member of the Clinton Global Initiative, a charitable organization created by former President Bill Clinton. So that story's ongoing. Wow. The New York Mets are among six Major League Baseball teams to offer their young Latino prospects, primarily ones from the Dominican Republic, high school degree programs. Two or three or more uh, teams plan to join in, USA Today reports. Having a degree is a clear benefit to the teenage athlete who may not ever see a major league at bat. And Mets officials say they consider the extra training off the field to be a competitive advantage that makes players more coachable. Hmm. Okay. I read the first line there where it said Major League Baseball and players from the Dominican and went, uh-oh. Here we go. How are they exploiting these people? Oh, no, they're giving them high school education. Oh. Which is fantastic. Good job, Mets. Good not just, job. Not just went on the field. The uh, U.S. Republican presidential candidate, Donald Trump, pr- he had a proposal last meet. He wanted to what? meet with Kim Jong-un. Remember that? Yeah, why? And that why would, would he want to do it that? It would change all sort of international you know, policy and on our relationship with North Korea. And he said, I'll sit down, I'll talk with them, we'll talk about their weapons program, and we'll come into an agreement. It's all about negotiation. <laughs> That's going to be a party. The, I want to be at that summit. The, uh, what is it? The UN ambassador from North Korea. Yeah. Right? He says this is a kind of propaganda or advertisement in an election race. Oh, okay. And that his, his uh, how did he put it, his most humble supreme leader? Yeah, it will be the decision of my supreme leader whether he decides to meet or not. But I think his Trump, I think Trump's idea is uh, is nonsense. And he says this is useless. It's just a gesture for the presidential election. Um, he's just following in the, the footsteps of Dennis Rodman. Yes. I, I don't know what this is going to get him. Nothing except – but you I'll know fix what? It. But uh, Obama basically he took two of our other enemies, Iran and Cuba, and yeah. negotiated with them. So maybe being presidential is this very act. Could maybe. be. Maybe but not. when he calls them a bimbo, I don't think that's going to go very well. <laughs> he might launch into that again. The supreme leader of bimbo. And finally, a Massachusetts man who made a resolution January first, nineteen eighty nine, to run every single day is still going strong 27 years later, wow. according to the AP. Lentworth Kip Williamson recently ran for the 10,000th consecutive day. The 57-year-old General Electric Company engineer manager says that he remembers reading at the time that if you can do something for 21 days, it becomes a habit. Huh. Now he puts in at least three miles a day and wow. sticks to the streets regardless of the weather, running as late as 11 p.m. and as early as 2 p.m. He says it's good time. It's a good time to think. I guess I enjoy the endorphins, and it's just part of who I am at this point. He says as long as his legs work, he'll continue running. How old is he? Fifty-seven. I mean, honestly, to have a habit that long—that's fantastic. I would love that. Mm. I usually can't keep a habit longer than a week. I mean, you know, Diet Coke. There is a day of rest. 
There's a day that you just shouldn't <laughs> run. Yeah. That's what but I like. things like that become addictive. Oh, yeah. The, the, you actually – you end up feeling bad because you didn't do it. Uh-huh. That, I think that's great, really. That's that's cool. Lucky to be him. Um, you want to hear even a longer-lasting legacy than mm. running that many years? Okay. North Korea. Back to North Korea. Yeah. Apparently, they're investigating their first bank robbery Ooh. after a break-in. Bad boys, bad boys. What you going to do? A source who spoke to Radio Free Asia said um, that North Korea's central bank had its first bank robbery ever. This is the first time the bank has been robbed since the founding of the country, and many people are fixated on the incident. You've got to be nuts to rob a bank in North Korea. (laughs) For political slight, where maybe you didn't show enough respect, I guess, in, Mm -hmm. in the eyes of the supreme leader. Yeah. There's rumors they, you know, feed you to dogs or they yeah. do all kinds of horrible things to you. I can't imagine what a bank robber would get. The source said the bank typically retains night guards on duty. But by the way, why would you? You don't need night guards. No. If no one's if if there's no crime. If it's never happened before, why would we need a guard? But at the time of the incident, the guards were reportedly not at their stations, which is there that that will be problematic. Hmm. I'm sure they might be walking the dogs air quotes. <laughs> The bank – or the dogs will be walking them. The bank robbers smashed the entrance and made away with the cash. The source said they took off with a total of 70 million North Korean won. One Is that what it's called? Yeah. The currency for which there is no official exchange rate. 70 million won. What do you do with that? Well, if you left the country, it's worth nothing? I guess. There's no exchange rate. And – huh. I don't know. You can't just all of a sudden spend it. I think it'd be a little conspicuous. Well, you just what you start doing is you just about you. You, you pass it of, out instead of living on twenty cents a day. You live on twenty five cents a day. Ooh, I'd throw up some red alerts there. <laughs> They'd notice that you order an extra bowl of noodles. Know what I mean? Could be. All of a sudden, you're the guy that's getting really fat. Now, some of these rumors of punishment in North Korea could be overstated. Yeah. There was an uncle of Kim Jong-un that disappeared for a while, and all of a sudden, he showed up. He's back. Yeah, he got a promotion. Sure, he's missing an arm. Whatever. Yeah, I, you lose an arm here. I don't know. <laughs> it's not that bad. It just dropped off. <laughs> What's going to happen? Some people. Um, did you hear about the NFL? Yes. The NFL, they're in trouble. They are. I mean, A, they had a whole movie come out basically focusing on their concussion studies. And it was criticized because the NFL promoted it quite a bit. Yeah. So by doing so, does that mean that it didn't tell the full story? It told the NFL story. Right. We're not sure. So the bombshell report released Monday by Democrats on the House and Energy and Commerce Committee implicates top NFL officials in an attempt to influence a study on brain injury research conducted by the National Institutes of Health. Central to the investigation is a $30 million unrestricted donation that the NFL gave the NIH in 2012, $16 million of which was flagged in 2014 to fund research into chronic tra- uh, traumatic encephalopathy, a debilitating brain disease associated with repeated head traumas. But the dilemma is um, after the NIH selected Boston University researcher Dr. Robert Stern to lead the study, however, the NFL balked and pulled its funding – forcing taxpayers to pay for the study instead, the report shows. The league later offered $2 million to help fund the study. 
and the NIH declined the contribution, opting to cover the entirety of its cost itself. So it's like they go for the press of it all and then, and then back out. when they didn't like the guy that was going to be doing the study because it might not be pro-NFL, they pulled out, leaving so the NIH hanging with the bill. The question is do they really care about concussions or is it all lip service just so they can continue to yeah. cause more concussions is kind of how it's been read. But they got to be careful because I'm – just so you know, I'm in the know hmm. because – there's a lot of moms that won't let their kids play fo- Little League football. I mean all my kids play football. Uh, we've done it for years and there's a lot of parents that won't do it. Right. They just won't do it. They – I mean in fact in my neighborhood, lacrosse, which is probably not much safer, but lacrosse well, has taken off too. But you're not purposely covering yourself in – plastic and running full on into each head other head, right now i know like lacrosse is very physical basketball depending on how you play can be physical yeah. baseball you can get hit in the head with a ball there's all the every sport there's a possibility for a problem it just seems like in football you're purposely putting yourself in a greater rate of risk yeah. by, by putting them out there i wouldn't mess for I what purpose either yeah I right mean, there's such a small number of people that get beyond high school well and it's 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 a really fun sport and football is a great sport for team and to mm-hmm. learn leadership and team stuff uh, it's and i think it's one of the funnest to watch and play but you can't make a mom doubt you no and, and this isn't helping the nfl backing helping. out of of landmark studies isn't isn't helping i think they just need to jump on it and lead it and say yeah let's fix it and figure out ways to change the game a bit if you have to no, because they would lose money and they don't want to lose money. Well, they're going to lose money anyway. They want to prolong, push that down right. the road as long as possible so they can continue to – See, then it becomes the cover-up and the watch. scandal and then it will all of a sudden be on 60 Minutes. Well, it's already been there. Again. <laughs> I know. Dangerous. Well, who watches 60 Minutes anymore? Right. <laughs> Great point. Me and the rest of my rest home friends. Oh, you are so... I mean, but you look at the numbers of who watches 60 oh, Minutes, it's 60 are... and up. You're not and going one, to heaven. one guy that's sub 40 in Utah. That's me. <laughs> that's you. I actually I... have a joke about that. No, it's Uh-oh. not funny. Oh, hold on. Remember, none of your jokes, they have to be vetted first. Yeah. So tell us the joke during the break. We'll figure it out. You, oh. You've had a track record of, we've had to apologize. Well, I, I promise it's a good one. Mm. Yeah. Should Famous. we wait? No, yeah, let's wait. Okay. Well, yeah, we have to just for censoring reasons, right? I mean, it wouldn't have we wouldn't have to if he hadn't. You remember? If I had a dump button for the delay on this side of the table, rather than it being in front of Ben, who he says these things and then just totally forgets that this yeah. is you know live. Mm-hmm. It's sad. Well, uh, let's go check on that joke, and then we'll come back if it's funny and worth telling. We'll share it with you. If not. We'll just get right into our interview with Donald Barclay. We're going to be talking about uh, libraries. You know, in the Internet age, are they still necessary? Do you still need a brick-and-mortar place? You know, a community center where you can go get a book and check it out? We'll find out, folks. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, live a healthier, happier life. We'll be right back. Talking libraries. Got a library card. 
Welcome back, everybody. Little Arthur for you. You know, fun isn't hard when you've got a library card. Today we're talking libraries. So when I when I say the word library, what visuals enter into your mind? Maybe the old, uh, you know, that old librarian shushing you. Quiet. Maybe you remember sitting on the floor as a child while listening to somebody as they read a story to you. Perhaps you were used to just spending hours searching things on the Internet. Uh, I remember, for me, libraries meant dissertations, master's thesis, thesis, and uh, a lot of just tough reading and work. But libraries, you know, they, they, they're they a part of our past. They're a part of our history. And are they still a part of our future? You know, the research may surprise you. Here to discuss the health of libraries and the future is Deputy Librarian of UC Merced's uh, library system, Donald Barclay. Donald, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you, Matt. Great to have you here. What do you think? You wrote a great article in theconversation.com. Has the library outlived its usefulness in the age of the Internet? You'd be surprised. Donald, do we need to get rid of libraries? Well, um, I don't think so. I hope not. Yeah, no, that'd be your Um, job. Yeah, well, you know, it only has to last a few more years for me. (laughs) Um, But But I I was kind of surprised. I, you know, I started looking at at the num- when I started looking at the numbers, the best numbers we have, um, which are collected through um, an agency of the federal government about libraries, just showed that um, public libraries are getting more use than ever. That um, um, you know, going the the statistics really only go back to about the beginning of the internet, well, of the web, mm-hmm. um, and um, you know, early '90s and. They just showed a steady growth in the number of people using libraries throughout the whole Internet period. Um, and that, that kind of surprised me, actually. Um, and I, I found a similar sort of pattern in uh, academic libraries, although in academic libraries what you saw was people were not asking reference questions that dropped off. People were not um, using print materials and checking them out the way they had been. That dropped off like 50% over 20 years. But um, what you did see were, were, peop- were students going to the library to, for the, to the physical space. And I think there's a couple of reasons why the library as a place, as a physical building, is still important. Um, it's like a community, right, of, of, yeah, of learning, of access to information? Exactly. It's, it's, a, it's a learning place. It's also in a, in a world where, you know, frankly, where there's so much concern about security and safety and things being locked down. I mean, I remember as a kid in Idaho living in Boise, I could ride my bike to the state capitol and walk in the state capitol building and walk around and nobody even looked at me. You know, right. nowadays, try that at the state capitol. Yeah. You know, you have to go through a metal detector, et cetera, et cetera. So... But libraries are the last place I know of where, in, in this country, where you can go and be somewhere and not have to spend any money and not have to have a reason to be there. Hmm. That's the true. La- I mean, as far as indoor places go. And that's why that's created a problem for some public libraries, which is an, uh, you know, a negative image of public libraries. If you go to a public library, especially in a big city, it's full of homeless people. Right. And that's something that has scared you know, some people away from libraries. 
But in spite of that, that negative perception, and you see that everywhere, there's even, you know, there's an episode of The Simpsons where Lisa goes to the Springfield Public Library and it's full of hobos. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's mocked like that. People are still using libraries, still going to the public library, because it's, it's, a, it's sort of the last free indoor public space where you can go. And it's also that place where you can find some peace and quiet. Mm. That's part of it. You know, there's not many places left where you can go and, and not be distracted by everything that's going on. Of course, we carry distractions in our pockets um, that's hard to get away from. But, but they're, they're kind of quiet distractions, to... aren't they? they you yeah. can just put your earphones in and quietly be distracted. So it's an interesting thing I heard you say. Um, more and more people – so more and more libraries are being built, according to your research. Also, more libraries are being used and accessed – Except we're not checking out the materials like we used to. That's been cut by half. Well, in public libraries. In public libraries, the, right. In public libraries, the checkouts have gone up. Oh, they've gone up. Okay. In, in academic libraries, slightly. Okay. In academic libraries, they've gone down. Huh. Because so, yeah. in academic libraries, every, so much stuff is electronic. Right. Um, and students can access it from anywhere 24-7. Um, you know, and you know how students are, especially undergraduates – um, they don't necessarily plan things way in advance, and if yeah. they can get a an article online at midnight, they're going to use that. You know, that's that's a natural way for for people to operate. I wonder if it's a millennial thing too, um, because I, when I was writing my and and do, had had to do a lot of writing, I couldn't go to my office because then everyone would want me to work. So I had to go, and I couldn't go home because my kids would be there, and I needed to write. So I would go to a library. But my son, and this was years ago, but my son, um, he he, when he needs to study, he doesn't study at home necessarily. He would go to a public library and sit there. And so it's, I, I see it almost as I thought it would have been lost by that generation, but um, apparently the millennials like it as well. Yeah, I think one of the things, and I've heard this from some of my my colleagues, library colleagues, especially in librarians in bigger cities um, like San Diego, um, Los Angeles, um, students are either living in dorms or they're packed into apartments to save money. Right. And they can't study at home. Yeah. And the library is a place where they can go and study as long as they want. Now, you can go to Starbucks, you can go to Denny's, but you've got to spend some money and, you know, sooner or later they're going to start looking at you funny if you don't buy anything. Right. And it's noisier. The you can go and stay there. Yeah. The, uh, the other thing that academic students use library for is that they get lots and lots of group projects now. And they have to have a place where five, four or five or six of them can come together and work. And the library is, you know, one of the only places on many campuses where they can really do that. And that's why we have a sort of a, a dichotomy in academic libraries is people come for quiet space so you have to provide quiet space, but they also come to do group work. So you have to provide whiteboards mm. and tables and right. rooms and meeting where rooms they can, where they can collaborate. And also, I, the technology too is part of why people come to libraries. And I think, you know, maybe during the, the you know, the, the the early days of the web, you know, the first ten years of the web, which is roughly, you know, the the web was really launched in '92. It caught on in the national consciousness in a big way around 95 where where it was really you know everybody was aware of it and but during those early years libraries public libraries especially were a place we could go and get online right and that was a big attraction and that may have helped in a way save libraries through that period um 
and and but people still go down and libraries are doing you know a lot of interesting things public libraries have you know places for groups to meet so there's a knitting club at the library uh-huh. there's a you know, a, and it's a free it's a free meeting space I think because right. I used to need I rented places out and you, you could meet at the library but it was just always hard to get one because it was free and everybody would go there. Right, right. But so they 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 do provide those kind of spaces. Um, that you know a lot of public libraries are doing special spaces just to appeal to teenagers. So they might a, a really nice public library might have a children's room, but they might also have a, a teenagers room. Huh. With plus, a lot of technology and, and furniture and things that appeal to teenagers. Plus one thing I've seen, and this seems to be like libraries fighting the tech world, not fighting it, going with the flow, is is the ability now to download uh, e-books, to download, mm-hmm. and download audible audio recordings of stuff. Right. And to just yeah. – so I can actually access my library's databases from home and download right. stuff. Yeah, and, and that's a big attraction too. There's – and that, that's been an interesting problem because um, there have been some struggles with publishers um, who – publishers are still trying to figure out how to make money on ebooks. Right. Um, and so there's been a struggle, and in some cases, publishers will not allow their front list books, the, their best sellers, right. Out there. to be made available through library ebooks. So um, – that's a pro- that's a struggle, especially for public libraries, because they really deal in bestsellers. You know, an academic library, you know, a best-selling academic book nowadays sells a thousand copies worldwide. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, l- academic libraries don't really have that problem so much. But a public library where everybody wants to read the latest, you know, Stephen King or John Gresham or, you know, Amy Tan, whoever, whoever, um, that that may be more of a struggle to get those kind of hot books on. Mm. Uh, on an ebook format. Donald, let's take a break, come back. I want to sure. continue the discussion and find out what what do we what does the future look like? And I mean, is there a day that everything will just be online and we'll just be accessing it somehow online and then using maybe the library it sounds like might be more of a social gathering, a community type of center. Stick with us. We'll have more with Donald Barclay, Deputy University Librarian at the University of California Merced campus. And uh, continue the discussion, folks. Interesting stuff. You never, I mean, what happens? Could the library go away? Is it just an iBook thing? What do we want to do with this? Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Do we still need libraries? I personally would argue absolutely anything that could foster community and a safe place for people to go and learn, uh, you know, and, and gather. What's the harm? And when you think about it, according to our guest, Donald Barclay, uh, it may be one of the only places we have to meet anymore that's safe and quiet and focused on learning. That's not necessarily an, an, a learning edu- or an institution. Joining us on the phone is Deputy Librarian of UC Merced, uh, University of California Merced campus, and he's um, he is the author of an article. Has the library outlived its usefulness? 
in the age of internet, you'd be surprised. Donald Barclay, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So, um, the technology is making it so, especially interestingly, I loved, uh, when I was getting my doctorate, I loved the ability to just research online, get the materials I wanted, and then have them either delivered to, if I wanted the hard copy, delivered to my university, go pick them up there, or sometimes I could even actually download the the pieces. Is this going, is our libraries, uh, going to be more affected kind of just in the public library or more of the academic institutions? Where do you see both of them going? Well, that's an interesting question. I, you know, clearly the ebook is with us and, you know, you, you occasionally will read articles saying, well, oh, people don't like ebooks anymore. They're done with them. They're back on print. And I think that, um, you know that that there, we're always going to have print around. Right. It's a it's a different experience than reading an ebook, but I would argue that it's a very different experience to read a 2015 edition of David Copperfield than to read David Copperfield as a serial publication in in Britain when it was first published, right. or even reading it as a three decker novel. A different kind of tactile experience reading those things. Um, so, you know, the, the book will be around, and I think what we're going to see is that it's kind of, I, I use automobiles and horses as an analogy. We have automobiles, we still have horses. They're used for a lot of things, mostly for the experience, for, you know, recreationally, although there are places where horses serve real function, you know, where cars just don't work and horses do. And I think we'll always, print will sort of be like that, you know. Um, most of our transportation will be, electronic, but we'll still use the book occasionally, or maybe even more than occasionally. Um, the other thing about the ebook, and I, you know, I have, I've had discussions with this, is people will say, well, you know, we don't, you know, ebooks, the experience, you know, it's just, it's not the same, it's not as good as reading a book, you can't annotate it, you can't flip through it like a book, uh, you know, and, and you'll, there have been studies where people interview college students, and the college students say, yeah, we prefer print to e um, and I think that I think there's some truth to that. The experience of the ebook lacks something, but it's also sort of using the car analogy. It's sort of like looking at the car in 1905 and saying, "Well, this is never going to replace the horse because this car, you know, it, it goes slow and it breaks down and you know, yada yada." Well, cars have evolved, and I think the ebook experience will evolve a lot right. over time. Right. So I, I think that as e-book, the ebook reading experience gets better, people are going to be less likely to say, um, you know, I just don't like ebooks. I, I think also, on the other hand, though, um, the idea that everything's going to be on the internet. Well, there's a lot of obstacles to that, um, and the biggest one is copyright issues, and that's what I was talking about earlier yeah. about, you know, publishers not wanting their their A-list material to be electronically available through libraries anyway. And there's also concern about from publishers about, you know, of course, if, I, if one electronic copy gets out there. And somebody copies it, you know, uh, then nobody's buying my my publication, and it's ruining me. So those are all those are all factors that are going to until they, those things get solved in some way, which they may never get solved. There's always going to be um, the desire to to keep at least some things from being electronic. We also have a big problem in in copyright terms, and you may have heard of something called the Hadi Trust which is a big online library um, 
it has something like six million full textbooks that hmm. are totally available for people to anyone to read. Wow! And and they're mostly pre nineteen twenty three publications because those are out of copy. Right. Um, but what we have is a a big gap from nineteen twenty four to the present, essentially, where or well, at least till E really started to take over, where you've got all of these books that are out there, they, that they've actually been digitized. They could be made available. They're actually sitting in the Hathi Trust, but they can't be made available because they're still in copyright, and there's, even though maybe this book hasn't been published in 40 years and there's no market for it, clearing the copyright is impossible because, you know, it's impossible to figure out who owns it, um, et cetera, et cetera. Those things are going to be in copyright limbo for for years and years and years, I mean, till they they finally come out of copyright, which could be you know fifty, sixty years from now. That's true. There's the there's the whole money side of this, isn't there? And the copyright side, and so, I mean, maybe I guess too that was interesting because if uh, if I would sell a book and I wanted my books in the library system, which you would, that's mm-hmm. ten thousand books sold, right? I mean, to get one in each library, and there oh, might yeah. be two, so you could get yeah. twenty thousand books out there just by getting it in the library system. Which yeah, again, like you yeah. said, the average—I think the average book sold is like a hundred books, right? Because there's hundreds well, of thousands of books every year. Well, scholarly books, you know, yeah. selling, you know, a few hundred copies is is doing okay nowadays, at least for a scholarly book. Obviously, popular books sell a lot more. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can still sell, you know, Stephen King still sells millions, uh, right? So popular writers. So going well. forward, I mean, they're going to have to get through a lot of. Uh, I guess a lot of these um, – the financials behind it. Um, but in the end, like you were saying earlier, this, this is more of a community kind of center. This is becoming – libraries, it sounds like, will evolve a little bit more uh, at least for the next near future until they can fix uh, copyright in, infringement and, and uh, find a way to make money and still get them to the libraries. People will still be checking books out at a higher rate. Than normal. I mean, it's been going up apparently, not going down, which was what everyone was assuming. But yeah. the community side of it is also valuable. As a as a lib- as a kind of an expert in the field of library science, what I mean, there is a community you can't beat. Like you were saying, it's a safe place, and it's a quiet place and a place of learning. Yeah, yeah. I, well, yeah. I think that that a lot of communities value that. You know that that. Um, and, and, you know, you do have, in every community, you have a lot, you know, you tend to have a lot that have libraries. You have a lot of library supporters, and people are, you know, in general, see the good of it. They, they uh, you know, they, they understand that it's more than, it's more than just about having access to books, that it's, it's I think, it still is a symbol of, of community. You know, one of the interesting stories about, about public libraries was, um, in New York City, right after 9/11, um, the public libraries were jammed. Huh. They, they were people were just crowding into them as you know as fast as they could, because it was a symbol of coming together in community. You know, right. it was a refuge from all this horror that was going on in their city, um, and I think that that still resonates with people. And you know, you can. You occasionally hear, you know, you'll hear somebody go, well, you know, the argument being, well, you know, why do we need libraries? We're spending public dollars on this. Everything's on the Internet. People have computers at home. They're just hangouts for hobos. Um, So, 
you know, th- there is that, that argument. And, you know, if you want to take a totally objectivist argument, you'd say, well, you know, if libraries were really that valuable, they could make it in the free market. But I think a lot of people, most people in this country anyway, don't see it that way. They see them as symbols of, of, of community. And, and the, even though public libraries are usually governmental organizations, they're almost always city or at most county organizations. Right. So they're, they're not, you know, it's not like the federal government. The federal government has libraries, of course, but it's not like every town has a federal library. You know, it's not people from D.C. telling you what to do. It's your own community. And you can go to the city council meeting or you can go to the county uh, commissioner's meeting and speak about the library and tell them what you think about it. So I think that that, that sense of it being a symbol of, of local control and you know, people having a voice and things, I think that, that still resonates with people. Yeah. And, and certainly as a place to come together, you know. And, and But unfortunately, you know, there, there are places where, in my own town, you know, they, they, they don't take very good care of the library. You know, they, they, um, they don't spend a lot of money on it. They, you know, it's kind of run down. It's not in the best place. You know, and that's kind of sad to see. But there are other, lots of communities, plenty of communities we can point to and go, you know, where libraries are well-maintained and they have great programs and they really appeal to the community. And, you know, if there's, you know, if there are a lot of Hmong speakers in a town, you know, a good public library will have things for them. Or if there's, you know, um, a, a, you know a lot of places, a lot of Spanish-speaking people, they have really strong programs and collections that appeal to that community. You know, those kind of libraries and that role of the library, I think, is still really valued and pe- people get it, why it's important. Right. And you can almost see that they would quit investing in funding, believing that more and more people are going online. But your data, I think, you, you, you know, can't yeah, – it's I, not it's in dispute. Like I said, it surprised me. It's, yeah, it's, it's, that's why it's such, such a valuable uh, piece um, that you wrote there. Uh, again, we appreciate you being here. Donald Barclay. Uh, and your great work um, on this article, Has the Library Outlived Its Usefulness in the Age of the Internet? You'd be surprised. You can find that article on theconversation.com. Again, Donald Barclay is the Deputy University Librarian at the University of California Merced Campus. Thanks for being here, Donald. We'll take a break. Thank you. And appreciate uh, just your work. Opening our minds up, folks, giving you the information you need. The library's not dead. Go use it. And it sounds like it's going to be a while you'll be able to check books out because they're never going to solve the financial side of that. That's a big deal. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Libraries are here to stay, folks. Just sit back and relax. What more do you need? But the problem is, a lot of these kids, I think, just go to the library to get away from their parents, hang out with their friends, and then they play video games. And we know where that's going to lead them. To the dark place. The dark place. Yeah. Have increased hand-eye coordination. Yeah, I guess that'll help you. There you go. In hell, <laughs> the dark place. We all know them video games. They're where are they going to lead you? Nowhere good. Could lead you all kinds of places. Do you want, do you want some entertainment news? Sure. So we've talked recently about Angry Birds. Yes, the movie that just came out. 
it's a game on your phone. Yeah. And they made a two hour, hour and a half, whatever how long it is, movie about it. I'm not sure what it's about or what the story is, but it seems like it's a little overkill for a game that the whole point is, you know, throw the bird into the wall. <laughs> then there's Weird. Tet- they're making a Tetris movie. No word on what it's about or what the story will be or actors attached to the project, but Tetris as a movie. I know. That's so dumb. I told you about Battleship. Did you ever yeah. watch that? No, not yet. Okay. I, I, it, yeah. Not a cinematic masterpiece. Okay. That's one reason uh, I haven't watched it. There's some interesting like pieces of the movie that look in, you know, things. Oh, that looks interesting. You know, yeah, but you other might. than that, it's a Battleship, right? You're like right. B12 and the, you know, something with Battleship. But that, that is no part in the movie. Right. There's a point where they zoom out and there's a grid on the ocean, mm-hmm. but it still doesn't really. And they're killing aliens. Yeah, it's aliens. So it's not Battleship. You it's something else. Battleship. So again, they're, they're stretching these things. Well, now word comes. Fruit Ninja. Oh, brother. Have you ever played Fruit Ninja on your yeah, phone? Yeah, I did for about an hour. When... They, they toss up a watermelon. Yeah, cut you it. You slice it with a sword. Occasionally, you throw a bomb up. Mm-hmm. And if you slice the bomb, then it blows up and game over. If you hold back and don't slice the bomb, you continue to slice fruit. Right. Now they're going to make a movie about it. Why? I don't know. Are there that many fans? The Hollywood Reporter says that there are uh, two writers... Okay. One that wrote uh, How to Survive a Garden Gnome Attack. I'm not sure what that is. We'll, wow. write, the, we'll write the script. Okay. I'll tell you their names, but you don't know who they are. There's no indication of what the movie will be about, but the story um, the, the story in The Hollywood Reporter acknowledges that the game is about ninjas with an, ex- an inexplainable vendetta against produce. Yeah. So maybe the adaptation will just run with that. Uh, I th- I think, again, this goes back to my argument that Hollywood has no talent left. The Angry Birds movie ended up being a bizarre screed against immigration, but nobody will care if Fruit Ninja rips it off and does the same thing. If you have an island full of peaceful ninja characters, evil fruit monsters arrive, and then ever, ever you know, whatever. It's just dumb. It is dumb. Let's not, let's not ever talk about that again. Speaking of, oh no, I lost my story. Nerd alert! Where did it go? Oh, you it's know, over here. Um, speaking of other things to waste your time. Okay. We've got one more. Do we have time? Yeah, we, we have do. Time. Excellent. Stuff people watch on TV or on their computers now. With Facebook, they have this Facebook Live. Right. Oh, yeah. We, we looked we, at that. We looked day. at that the other day. It's on everyone's computer. If you have a camera, you can click on a button on Facebook Live and you're live on Facebook. That's and so weird. People you've, that follow you can watch, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's also on your phone. The other day in Los Angeles, two comedians left their Nissan Leaf vehicle out on the out on, in front of the house during a weekly two-hour period reserved for street sweeping. And then they narrated a 40-minute live stakeout waiting to see how long it would take for the car to get a parking ticket. 13,000 people at one point or another were watching, and they had like 31,000 total views. Wow, wow. So like, it was just a car sitting at the at the curb. Waiting for someone to come by and give it a ticket, and these two comedians sat there. I think it's and weird because you we clicked on a bunch of different areas, so you could go, but you didn't know what you were clicking into. Yeah. So all of a sudden, you could click into something you just don't want to be watching. Right. Like that. The guy that wrote this this piece here on this uh, 
Joppelink. It's a car website. It says, as of this writing, 28,000 people. It moved up to 31,000 people. He goes, there's undoubtedly something inherently compelling about liveness combined with that crushing boredom many people seem to feel at their places of work. And you've got yourself an audience. I'm bored. I'll watch anything. Hey, there's a card just sitting there. Let's let's watch this. Really? This is, I think, why America is suffering. Could be. Did the guy ever get ticketed? Yes, he got a ticket. How long did it take? It took about 40 minutes. Wow, that's pretty efficient. Yeah. So, I mean, they got there. It, it took care of uh, – I don't know what the point was. I think they were trying to do like a protest against uh, – I'll bet the head though of that comp- – of the, organi- or the city that tickets – was watching the show and he's like, I got to get a guy out there. Possibly. And they dispatched an emergency ticket rider. Mm. Anyway, interesting stuff, folks. We'll take a break. Come back. Uh, next hour, we'll be talking about quackery. You know, these ideas of these medical saving procedures or techniques or magical liquids that prevent cancer. Quackery, folks. We'll talk about it up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, hour number three of the show. It's the program where we give you the tools, the information you need to live, love, and lead healthier, happier lives. Top of the morning to you. Today, we will be talking with Dr. Ron Hager, who is uh, going to talk to us about quackery. You know, buying those, uh, the, the, the potions and the lotions and all the things that, you know, get rid of every problem you could ever have. Snake oil. Snake oil, salespeople. Quackery. We'll be getting into that, which is a big deal. Last week we talked, or last time I think he was here. Oh no, that was a whole other thing. Twenty uh, percent of um, the third leading cause of death, medical errors. Yeah, he thought this was a a sort of a follow up to that. Yeah. So, whereas you're not necessarily in a hospital, but you're 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 choosing some sort of healthy program, I guess, that may be unproven, and he gives some tips on how to figure out what's true and what's not. And you got to be careful. This is your health. Right. So we'll get to that with uh, Dr. Ron Hager. Also, we will be speaking with our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation, find out what's going to come up on their show at the top of the hour. We always like to, you know, just pick their brains. I'm going to ask them a few questions about their favorite Kit Kat bar. Hmm. There's a new flavor out that uh, isn't as popular. And also, happy asparagus day. I like me some some asparagus. It's good stuff. Speaking of snake oil salesmen, I'll never forget the first time I had asparagus. Okay. And then about an hour later, I thought I was dying of cancer. Right. And I won't get into the details, but... Do you like asparagus? I love asparagus. It's good stuff. Yeah. As a kid, you're like, that looks a little odd. I don't know if I want to eat that. Yeah, but it's good. Oh, it's good stuff. Yeah. Mm. So happy Asparagus Day, the day we celebrate this delicious, wonderful mm, spear of goodness. 
a spear of goodness. <laughs> but first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? Thanks, Matt. Hillary Clinton has declined to participate in a proposed debate moderated by Fox News in California after her opponent Bernie Sanders pushed for it and said he would participate. Nobody involved is surprised that she is not going to participate, except Bernie Sanders. He's surprised for political reasons. <laughs> the U.S. House of Representatives Oversight Committee announced the head of the security for TSA was removed from his position on Monday. The panel did not give a reason for his dismissal, but I'm imagining from all the hearings they've held, they're not happy with performance at the TSA. <laughs> Schools across the nation were hit by a wave of robocall bomb threats on Monday, closing buildings and forcing the evacuation of thousands of students, the USA Today reports. Elementary, middle, and high schools, at least in at least 18 states, were targeted. And security expert Kent Trump says that the automated calls seem to have all the signs of swatting, which are hoax calls, often computer-generated, meant to elicit a big response from law enforcement. Even schools in the U.K. were affected, with at least one receiving a warning that shrapnel from explosives would... Uh, cause lots of damage per yeah. the, this out of the independent none of the threats were deemed credible but uh caused a lot of chaos yesterday at schools hmm. for the price of one thousand one hundred ninety five dollars journalists headed to the to cleveland for the republican national convention it can go into the affair with the kinds of skills needed to report in a war zone Paul Burton, the training director for Global Journalist Security, usually counsels photographers and writers preparing to enter conflict zones like Afghanistan and Iraq, but he recently offered a special course to journalists covering the Republican convention in Cleveland. Hmm. A retired British commando, Burton served in the invasion of the Falkland Islands and ran operations in Northern Ireland before joining Global Journalist Security, training including uh, learning jiu-jitsu moves, as well as how to treat burns, breaks, and chest wounds. Burton also walks his students through simulated conventions and rallies. Wow. That could also just help you get into school. Could be. Or Black Friday. <laughs> exactly. You could you could deal with the, uh, the pre-Christmas sale. <laughs> That's so sad. <laughs> also, a, the, you've, have you ever driven through the channel between England and France? Never driven through it. No, nope. never trained through it, nothing. It's 31 miles long. Mm -hmm. Goes under the, uh, yeah. the Atlantic. Is it, what's that called? The English Channel. Yeah. Um, to mainland Europe was no small engineering feat, but Switzerland has stepped up the game. On June 1st, it will begin testing trains in the world's longest, deepest tunnel. It costs $12 billion, called the, the Gothard Base Tunnel, cuts through solid rock as deep as 7,500 feet under the Alps, and runs a whopping 35 and a half miles long. Wow. wow. Allow, allows passenger trains to travel up to 155 miles per hour. The twin tunnels, one for each direction, should reduce travel times between Zurich and Milan from four hours to two and a half hours. The whole project, now the world's longest tunnel, took 17 years to build, cost the equivalent of the 2012 London Olympics. It says, for American comparisons, the tunnel houses enough concrete to span the height of 84 Empire State Buildings. And it's going to save an hour and a half. An hour and a half. <laughs> I'm not sure that's going to pay off for a very, very long time. Actually, they say the uh, the the tonnage of shipping, yeah, oh. uh, material through like you know semi trucks and sure. things like that is huge. Cutting the time down on the logistically moving that kind of freight around is going to is going to make yeah. its money back pretty you quick. You could see that. Hmm. Wow. Golly, I've got I've got a tunnel I need them to build. Yeah. <laughs> if they're done with that one. Interesting. Um, I guess that's good news. I mean, they're done. Yes. There's nothing worse than a tunnel that's not ready yet. Well, there is. A tunnel that's flooding. Yeah. 
<laughs> That's probably worse. Hey, uh, did you hear about this um, knife-wielding Chinese man? Hmm. He proves again that crime, folks, bad boys, bad boys. doesn't what pay. Anyway, there's this there's the, there's a robber in China with really bad luck. He did, and so he's a knife wielding man. Spent an afternoon terrorizing various businesses in downtown Shanghai, but only succeeded in stealing uh, pocket change before being arrested. The unidentified man started at a life insurance company where he was chased off by security guards. He then tried to, uh, his luck at a supermarket, only to be scared away by uh, the shoppers. The high point of the man's crime spree came at his third stop, a vegetable market, where he managed to get a 7.7 yuan, which is about a buck 19, off of one of the vendors. His success was short-lived, however, as he was arrested. So he goes on a knife spree all day. Walks away with a dollar nineteen. Which is that a lot in China? I don't know. It seems like that'd be a lot. I don't know. Probably not. Probably not bell. worth the effort. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. It's it's hard. I mean, here you think you're going to have a really good spree, and the next thing you know, you know, I'm up for a spree today. What about you? I'm, you I'm going to start knife with knife sharpened and everything. <laughs> it's funny. Like I, you can just see somebody hitting him with a purse. Get out of here. Hmm. Scram, you little knife spree guy. Wow, that you, was that was threatening. I don't know what you call a like how halfway through you a knife wielding guy. See, that's what should have happened to the dude right there. Right. That's crazy. Um So it's just not worth it. No. Not worth the time and effort. So do you know where do you know the difference between Birmingham, Alabama, and Birmingham? Birmingham, UK. I don't know how to say the difference between the two either. either, but yeah, I know the difference. Well, this poor lady, Richella Heakin and Ben Marlowe booked a vacation to Las Vegas, Nevada, but were disappointed to find upon arriving at the airport that the tickets they had purchased were for flights from the city in Alabama, not the one in Britain that they call home. So, I mean, you're trying to fly from Birmingham. Where you live. In the UK. To Vegas. To Vegas. And you buy the tickets to leave uh, from Alabama to fly uh, to Vegas. So now... Now you have to get a flight from where you live to Alabama. From Birmingham to Birmingham, which has got to be a deal. Could be. Don't you think? Yeah. So uh, they were denied a refund. So Heakin and Marlowe lost about $1,744. It's a common mistake, apparently. <laughs> that is so disappointing. Well, and you think when you, when you do the country... You hit. It's like you know, you United Kingdom, United States are right there next to each other. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, so if you're not paying attention, yeah. Birmingham, U.S. I guess Birmingham, U.K. Yeah. Wouldn't it say Birmingham, Alabama, A L U K U S? If I, I I could totally see not paying attention, you just keep going. But the website that actually helped them book at lastminute.com, um, they wouldn't refund them, but they did extend condolences. Oh, nice. So We feel your pain. That's yeah. worth a lot. Yeah. What would it's, you do? Would you get a flight to Alabama so you could get your tickets? Or Well, I would probably not go to Vegas. Didn't they find out when they got to the airport? I don't know. Oh. Just as they found out. Oh. That would be even more painful. Ah, you're at like, the airport. Oh, these you're like, tickets are so affordable. That's the other side. You could probably tell because of the price. 
But is that a normal ticket price from Alabama to Vegas? Is about seven, eight hundred dollars, nine hundred dollars. Maybe they got an upgraded option. I think they got ripped off either way. <laughs> anyway, poor, poor Richella and Ben. You're a you're a Netflix viewer at times. Yeah, I've watched it before. Netflix has announced a deal with Disney to be a, the exclusive pay TV home for all upcoming films from the Walt Disney company, which would include Marvel, Lucasfilms, and Pixar, beginning in September. Hmm. This would prevent movies such as Captain America, Civil War, and Star Wars uh, from appearing on HBO Stars or even online outlets like Hulu or Amazon Prime, but would not affect deals done for previous films. First announced back in 2012, Netflix outbid HBO and other pay TV companies for this wide-reaching deal with Disney. So what once it goes to the pay TV market, it goes to Netflix. It doesn't go anywhere else. Wow. That's a good gig. So now they're competing directly with, with like HBO and Showtime and these movie cable networks. Yeah. Huh. That's great. Making my life easier. Makes it easier. You don't have to go hunt down or, right. or have to wait for it to come out on DVD or something. We need to start consolidating some of these so I can – Yeah, it gets kind of confusing money. as you try to make your decision on what you're going to – because tie yeah, yourself up in. It shouldn't be so difficult. Um, there was a great story I have. I want to bring up about a mother. Y- you know, moms just love their kids, and sometimes moms don't always know everything about social media. Uh oh. That they should know. Um, so this mom goes and and her, she had just taken a child uh, to school hmm. at a university, and she just des- she oh. decides to just surprise her. And snuck into her dorm. Okay. <laughs> and um, this isn't going well. And just what she was going to do is sneak into the dorm and and snap a selfie of herself in her child's bed. Uh, okay. Okay. I think it was her daughter's bed, and um, she did it. She took this picture, smiling, super, <laughs> mm. super happy, and then sent it to the daughter. <laughs> and the daughter's like. Mom, where are you? And she's like, I'm in your dorm. Hmm. I'm in your dorm. And she's like, no, Mom, I'm in my dorm. Uh-oh. <laughs> so she had snuck in to someone else's room, took a selfie in that room, hmm. and then sent it to her daughter as a big surprise. And, oh, it was a surprise. Yeah. Oops. Mom, you're not in it. I think it was even a, a, the dorm of a boy. It was a boy's dorm. Awkward, awkward moment brought to you by mom. Couldn't you tell? You think? Don't you think a boy's dorm room smells differently than a girl's dorm yeah. room? Yeah. Well, and just all the shaving equipment. Right. Just, I mean, just just yeah. the smell. Just the things around. But I'm just gonna think. Not, not, not like it's dirtier. It just, it's gonna be different. Yeah. Like, man, Stacy has a lot of. Well, I saw this aftershave on my daughter's dresser. What's doing? <laughs> What's with all the Axe body spray? What's going on? Oh, that's sad. But it's a mom trying, right? Anyway, we'll post that on our Twitter feed as well, at Dr. Matt Show. I'm telling you, it's hard to be a parent nowadays. There's a lot of ways you can embarrass your kids, though. That's what's great about social media. What has taken them years to build, mm. you can destroy in one afternoon. <laughs> Just one massive... One massive mail, social email out to everybody. That's all it takes. Anyway, uh, again, here to help you live longer, love stronger, and hopefully not completely embarrass yourself or your daughter. 
This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking with Dr. Ron Hager about quackery, snake oil salesmen, people that are uh, trying to sell you a quick fix to health when in reality, health is pretty basic, right? And it's just maybe a slow fix with a lot of discipline. Interesting stuff coming ahead. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In studio with us is Dr. Ron Hager. Ron is an associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences at Brigham Young University. His area of expertise is chronic disease prevention, and he's here today to talk about medical quackery. If you remember last time Ron was on, we talked about the fact that the third leading cause of death is would be medical errors, just... A variety of errors that take place in the medical or the – it could be by doctors, but it could be by staff. It could be just the wrong meds. It could be misdiagnosis. It could be infections. And uh, we don't want to just beat up on doctors, but there's errors being made. And, and, you know, that's not about quackery. What what I thought we'd do is, you know, we mentioned that, you know, medical errors are a big deal. I was just at a meeting last night with uh, uh, a number of physicians, and they were actually talking about that. Because, and so they are aware. And as I said last time, you know, doctors aren't intentionally doing no. this. I mean, there are there are bad doctors, just like there are you know bad accountants and you know bad lawyers and you know and, and whatever. Right. Um, but but for the most part, you know, doctors want to do good things. But what I, what I worried about as I thought about it after we visited last time, uh, Matt, is that. People might say to themselves, "Well, that's it. You know, I'm not. I'm not going to access healthcare. I'm not going to access. Yeah, the, I'm going to find an alternative method to get <laughs> right, healthy. Right. And then th- that might take a person, you know, to the other extreme. So really, what this is about is being an informed consumer. And you're really talking about you can get healthy, not just surgery. Right. <laughs> you can also get healthy and not quackery. Yeah. So, but healthy can start right now for all of us. Right. And so even though, you know, there are problems that need to be overcome with, you know, making medicine safer, uh, you know, there, there's also this other end of the spectrum, kind of the other extreme, where, you know, so many people think that, you know, maybe there's a conspiracy in medicine or right. or, or whatever it is. And, uh, and so they, they go the opposite direction and they fall prey or victim to these uh, charlatans, basically, who you know are twisting the science, twisting the evidence, or, or flat out making things up, and uh, you know are, are you know always, always selling some kind of a product yeah. that's that's designed you know to to make you feel like you're the one in charge and that you don't need medicine, uh, you know, and that can be just as dangerous in many cases. So so the, you know, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about that. Because uh, again, there's a lot of money behind it, right? So, oh yeah, yeah, ju- just like medicine. I mean, you know, and, it's yeah, money drives a lot of things, even if it's yeah. not healthy. Yeah, even if it's not healthy. And, and I mean, my favorite joke is, you know, even a blind squirrel will find a nut once in a while, right? Right. So even even in quackery, 
there could be a weird anomaly. Sure. There could be some placebo effect. There could be a lot of other yeah. reasons why things work yeah. other than the lotion or the potion. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the, the problem is, though, Matt, that so many people have you know, tried so many approaches to whatever they're attempting to accomplish and they failed repeatedly. And so they get kind of in this cycle where uh, you know, wishful thinking sort of takes over yeah. and, and they begin to think you know, that the next best miracle whatever – you know, is the one that's going to finally work. And uh, and you can kind of develop this pattern in your life where you just start pursuing those things. And not only can you spend a lot of money, um, you know, and in, and in some cases from a health perspective, it may actually be harmless. But in other cases, uh, you know, like in the case of so many instances of like diet pills, right. you know, and, and the claims generally tend to be things like you don't have to change anything, you know, eat what you're normally eating. You know, if you don't want to exercise or be physically active, don't worry about it. <laughs> Sit in front of the TV, eat your ice cream, take this pill, and watch the pounds melt away. Weren't there potato chips that you could eat as many as you want, but they would – they made you so sick that you – there was something in, yeah. the, in the oil of the potato chip or right. something that it, just it, shot it right through. Yeah, it prevented you from absorbing Don't even the, worry. The eat all the potato chips you want, but – yeah, yeah. And, and so I mean, there are cases like that of either constipation or the opposite, diarrhea. There are uh, cases of chemicals, you know, that people ingest, uh, like in some of the cases of these diet pills, where they've actually had to be pulled off the market because they mm. increase risk of stroke yeah, and heart, heart attack yeah, and heart and death. disorders. Right? Yeah. I mean, some people were dying from so the, these things. You can't go against the principle. Is what you're saying? There's a principle. Well, yeah. Here. Uh, yeah. Right. And the principle is, you know. Nothing's easy, and there are no miracle cures. Right? You know, I mean, there. I mean, think about it, Matt. Tell me anything in your life that has ever been of any significant value that you didn't have to do anything for. Right. It just doesn't work. And, like c- that. and consistently. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Like, I didn't work hard at my incredible physique as a teenager. Right. I was just ripped. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But now it's like a nightmare. Yeah. Well, so so one of the things that happens is, um, uh, you know, people who are trying to develop a product or come up with some kind of a scheme or scam, uh, they they use sort of uh, practical common sense ideas. So one of the things I came up I came across was, uh, was looking into a uh, an old magazine called Science and Mechanics from 1935, and they published a story uh, about how gravity is what's making you old, that, that old age is simply succumbing to the effects of gravity. So if you could reverse the effects <laughs> of gravity, then you could literally be rejuvenated. You're Re- Rejuvenate. You could become young again. <laughs> and so, the, so I, I printed out this, this picture uh, from this magazine, uh, and it's called the Old Age Rejuvenator Centrifuge. <laughs> and they give an example – of uh, whirling a bucket of water on a rope. Yeah, right. And, you know, the centrifugal force keeps the water in the bucket right. as long no as the gravity. force. No gravity, come on. Yeah, so it's anti-gravity. And so they've developed this thing in hospitals. So, you know, this is clinical. <laughs> and, you know, and that's that's kind of a buzzword too or kind of a catchphrase that you see in a lot of these uh, 
you know, quack products is that, you know, independent clinical trials, you right. know, and that we hired somebody to do for us. It was independent of us, but uh, they independently did it. And, and we paid them and we, as independents. <laughs> right, exactly. So, so anyway, so this is in a hospital, and it's, it's this large circular platform uh, that rotates, you know, and it even says, you know, to make you feel good about it, it's a motor and gear drive revolving platform. Oh, yeah. So they also use a lot of really cool descriptive words like that. Like if you have, even if you've ever gone out to buy a vacuum cleaner. Right. You know, it's like, you know, th- they use all these ways to describe this vacuum compared to the other. You know, this has super turbo suction. <laughs> you know, like what is, what is super That's turbo? turbo times two. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah, or those kinds of things. Right. So. So they're describing this rotating platform that's got beds on it. So, I mean, how cool is this? You, you can just sit go, on it. You just go lay down yeah. in a bed and get young again by rotating on this platform with your head towards the perimeter right. so that gravity is reversed. Basically, it's pulling well, away instead this, of towards. This, we used to have one of these at the Fun House <laughs> yeah. at Lagoon, our local <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, amusement park. And you'd sit on it, and then they'd start spinning it, and people shoot off and fly off of it. Right. But I didn't know that reversed aging. Yeah. Well, it, they even have a picture of a very frumpy, grumpy, hunched-over old man. Yeah. Yeah. And, and after the rejuvenating centrifuge, uh, <laughs> he looks like Charles Atlas. Wow. Yeah. So it's pretty impressive. So it worked. So, so clear back in nineteen. He even lost weight, apparently. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You can see from the picture, he lost a lot of weight too. It all it went from his belly right up to his chest. Oh, that's turned crazy. from fat to muscle. Let's uh, let's take anyway. a let's take a break, Ron, and come back. And I want you to teach us what to do. Okay. To watch out for the quackery. Um, stick with us, folks. We're, we are giving you the tools, the information you need to live a healthier life. Uh, one of the first ways is watch out. Watch out. Be informed. Be informed about your health and about uh, the quick fixes. They, they, they don't work, folks. We'll take a break. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever fallen prey to one of the get healthy quick scams? Just drink this juice and it will, you know, cure your scoliosis. It's just the scoliosis juice or the cream that you rub on your skin to get rid of whatever, cancer. Dr. Ron Hager is joining us today, and he is a professor in the Life Sciences Department at Brigham Young University, uh, is also an expert in chronic disease prevention, and today he's talking to us about watch out for medical quackery, people uh, you know, trying to make a buck on you by selling you a quick fix, especially if it goes against principles of health. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and a lot of these things are promoted through testimonials, Matt. I mean, that, that's a big key right there, yeah. especially when it comes to you know, things related to your physical appearance or your physique. They have the pre and the post, the right. before and the after. Yeah. And then, of course, in the microscopic print at the bottom of the page that nobody can read unless they had a, a magnifying glass, it says, you know, these results may not be typical. <laughs> um, so so my, my personal feeling is that there's, there's really just no such thing as a valid testimonial. You know, right. You're biased. It's a bias. That's why you need it, it is. a full-blown – 
blind, double blind study. Right, right. And and you know these these quack products will say that they have scientific evidence backing yeah. them up. In fact, they'll say things like, uh, you know, recent medical discovery from Scandinavia. Uh-huh. You know, now they're not promoting this product in Scandinavia. In Scandinavia, they're saying recent medical discovery <laughs> in. Newark, uh, New in, Jersey, in, in Asia, you know, <laughs> right, or, or exactly. whatever. So, yeah. you know, so, so they make it kind of mystical, and it's like, wow! If only I lived over there, where all the brain trusts are, I could access this. But fortunately, this company right. has has secured the rights to this product or whatever it is, and and they can make it available just to me yeah. because they like me so much. Because if 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 it were working, everyone would be researching it. You would think so, right? right. Uh, uh, so, so that that brings up a great a, a great point. Uh, research has been done on a lot of these things. Uh, you know, there are a lot of alternative and what might be called complementary uh, treatments, say for cancer and for heart disease. And a lot of these things have been researched. And to be fair, these a lot of these products come out of valid research. Yeah. But then they get kind of spun or twisted. Uh, and taken out of context a lot of times, and sometimes it's just downright lies. Mm-hmm. And then it's sort of repackaged in, for, in terms of information and maybe even you know product materials and then sold to the public. And I've come across numerous studies where, for example, people have been taking these supplements that you know had certain claims – and you know the study was supposed to be say like a two year long study, but the researchers had to terminate it after one year because they find that the very thing they're trying to prevent, say like heart disease or cancer, that the people who are actually taking the supplement are getting the conditions so or the they, diseases yeah. faster than those on the placebo, and so ethically they have to terminate those studies. There are numerous studies to show that, and one of the things I really want to talk about just briefly is is the diet up thing. Uh, you know, in one of the examples, uh, there, there are many, many examples. Uh, you know, I, I did a little search on uh, diet pills, and in 0.33 seconds, I came up with 17,100,000 uh, hits. Wow. Uh, you know, so, and that was just to type in weight loss pills. But, uh, you know, a lot of my students were asking me some years ago, just a few years ago, about a very popular diet that was out at the time. It was called the HCG diet. Yeah, right. For human chorionic gonadotropin. It's apparently a kind of a hormone that is is produced in higher concentrations in women who are pregnant. And it was somehow discovered that, uh, you know, when other people could take this hormone, either a synthetic version of it, uh, you know, through an injection, that it would suppress appetite and then help you lose weight. But, you know, you could go on a very low-calorie diet without feeling hungry and all of this kind of stuff. And a lot of my students were asking about this because their parents or their uncle or their friends were asking them about it. And so I said, well, let me look into it because I and, – and, and, you know, and a lot of people had asked me about it personally too. So, so I looked into it. I thought, well, if this is, if this is the answer to the obesity epidemic, <laughs> then there's got to be some research on it, right? Right. So I started looking and I couldn't find a darn thing. And I thought, well, how can there not be anybody who's trying to either prove or disprove the validity of this dietary approach? And I realized that I had not expanded my search enough. So, you know, I was looking like in the 2000s, you know, for the most recent research publications, but I had to go all the way back into the 70s and the 80s. Oh, really? And guess what? This new HCG diet that, you know, uh, is just a recently discovered thing that experts have scientifically proven. Of course, the experts are never named and the science is never accessible. 
Um, so I go back into like the 19, late uh, 1980s, even into the early to mid-1970s, and I'm finding all kinds of research in medical journals, like the Archives of Internal Medicine, even the Journal of the American Medical Association, these premier journals. And, 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 and we're talking about randomized, placebo-controlled, double-blind, crossover studies, the most powerful study design. You know, this is what the science is. Yeah. And this is what they're finding. These results indicate that HCG has no effects on chemical and hormonal parameters measured and offers no advantage over calorie restriction in promoting weight loss. There was no statistically significant difference between those huh. receiving HCG versus placebo during any phase of this study. So wow. study after study I found. So HCG had been studied. But why is it back you know, uh, 20, 25 years later? Because yeah. it's a whole new crop of people right. who, who might be susceptible you know, to falling prey to this miracle cure for losing weight. So then I came across uh, a, a little opinion in a medical journal by a physician. It's titled, There They Go Again, HCG and Weight Loss uh, by Dr. Toffel. And he said that – and he'd been in medical practice for a while. He said the benefit of longevity in medicine, uh, you know, practice in, of medicine is that one is given the opportunity to observe attempts to reinvent the wheel. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. so th- these things are on a cycle. That's it. They're on a they're on a it's cyclical like a reboot pattern every twenty years. Yeah. And and he says, well, how can this be? How can something come back? He said, well, it's it's one of two things. Either uh, you know th- there was a failure to collect sy- systematic information about the effects of whatever it is. But in this case, you go back twenty five years and you find all kinds of collection of systematic information. Uh, and he says, uh, or it's responding to inappropriate incentives. Right. Okay, so this HCG diet was apparently a medically supervised diet. You actually had to go into a clinic that was overseen by a physician in order to receive your injections. But guess what? After a while, you didn't even need injections anymore. At the clinic, they would give you the stuff you needed and you could inject yourself. And then after that, you could actually order the stuff online. And then after that, you didn't need to inject at all. You could take it sublingually as a drop in no your way. mouth. And so it's just this progression that gets people to give more and more and more money. They milk it for everything they've got, and even sometimes physicians are involved in doing this. And so Toffel goes on to say, you know, that systematic information has been obtained. So the alternative explanation for the persistence and promotion of this particular treatment and others like it is unacceptable. It's about the money. Right. Matt? And it becomes – and then, you know, then it will go away, and then it will come back with another name. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So and another so, pitch. So the best piece of advice I can give, I, I mean, you know, we could go through some of the tricks and the traits and you know the, the the cues that you could look for, but but really, this is what it's about. Okay, if it seems too good to be true, it is. <laughs> it is, and just stay away from it. Right. You know, I, I remember hearing you, uh, you know, and uh, Terry going over the news. You mentioned you know the couple in in England who bought a yeah. ticket from Alabama to uh. Vegas instead of from England to Vegas. I mean, look. You you look at the prices of the tickets. If it seems too good to be true, yeah. that should be a red flag. That's, a, that's see, telling you something. Yeah, so, so look into it a little more and be an informed consumer. That's well, what it's about. And if it's all based in testimonial, if it's if there's to me there it, they there always has to be a good story behind it. Yeah. So it's like a magical berry. It's a it's a, it's coming from a tribe that has never had anyone die from cancer. Right. And so watch out for that. And then I guess another thing is just. 
let your gut tell you. I mean, if and ask questions. Yeah. So if even if you're dealing with with uh, contemporary medicine, ask questions. Do not be afraid to ask your doctor questions. If they don't give you answers, then find a different doctor. Right. Okay? Not right, exactly. So ask questions on both sides of this issue, whether it's traditional medicine or whether it's alternative therapies. You're the one who's ultimately responsible to get to the bottom of what's going to be best yeah. for you. I agree totally. Dr. Ron Hager, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, great, great insight for all of us. Watch out. It's your body. It's your health. And just get back to the basics. Get healthy and do it the old-fashioned way by earning it, working for it. Don't just look for the easy way out. We'll uh, take a break and come back, visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer and lead healthier, happier lives. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. One of my favorite songs, The Chicken Dance, just brings back memories of my two good buddies down at uh, BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Brian Logan. Brian Logan's filling in today for Jerem. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. Do you guys love The Chicken Dance or what? Are you trying to send a message? No. I love this song. I can just see you guys dancing it. They play it in between the uh, third and fourth quarter of every home BYU women's basketball game and invite fans onto the floor to do the chicken dance. Do they really? Have you ever gone out there? I have not been able to go out there because generally I'm working. Yeah, you just don't want to show <laughs> them the moves. <laughs> I understand. Come on, man. Brian, I want to see you do that. You'd be a great little chicken dancer. The chicken dancer? I just... could do the chicken noodle soup dance. Ooh, that's a different one. <laughs> Talk to me about that one. Yeah, what's involved in the chicken noodle soup? You know that song, chicken noodle soup. Chicken noodle soup. Chicken noodle soup with a soda on the side. You ever heard that song? No, but it sounds. I'm starving. It sounds great. It sounds really good. You guys need some more diversity in your lives. Totally. Totally. You have no idea. It's so true. Oh, no. I do. You have a little bit of an idea, don't you, Bri? Hey, Bri, it's asparagus day. Are you a big asparagus guy? Uh, only when I eat um, steak and mashed potatoes. Oh, that's a good meal right there mm-hmm. with asparagus. By itself, no. I uh, There's a high chance that I will throw up. Really? Yeah, I don't, I don't eat vegetables. Why? Why? What's know, your they, problem? They're nasty. They don't taste good. What is wrong with you? They, no, well, Brian, that's how you – how do you get that Have physique? You grilled asparagus with like the right seasoning and mm. all that stuff? Probably not. I mean, oh, I, prob- so I probably good. had the opportunity to have it, but I chose not to if there wasn't steak and mashed potatoes. I, w- I was telling the guys here that when I first tried asparagus, I thought I had cancer about an hour later. <laughs> <laughs> I really did. I thought I was dying. Is that bad? But, I mean, I won't tell you why. I mean... I think many people know why. I think I you're really totally know. right. Yes. I don't know why. Do you, we'll explain it later, Brian. Okay. Um, actually, let me just get you some asparagus. <laughs> as long as you have some steak with it, oh, I'm, I'm good to That go. is the best meal at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse right there. Uh, mashed potato steak mashed and asparagus. Mashed potato steak and asparagus. That's yeah. what I order. I don't – yeah. Poor people can't afford that. Well, no, but you ju- I've only done it once. Well, oh, once okay. a year, if you know what I mean. Oh. <laughs> anyway <laughs> – not to get too excited. Hey, have you guys ever? He's Brian. Poor people. <laughs> Brian. Oh Brian's independently wealthy. Just oh, pulled up no. in his Bentley. <laughs> Bentley, pretty much. 
pretty man. much a Bentley. Just pulled up a, in his. I don't have a Bentley. You pulled up in your Ford with your dog Bentley in the back seat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> totally. Hey, do you guys like Kit Kats? Absolutely. Yep. I got a new flavor for you. Do you th- and let me just run it by you. How can okay. you have a new flavor of Kit Kat? Because they, I guess they've they've tested a bizarre flavor, which Willy Wonka wouldn't even do. You ready for this? It's the new melon and cheese flavored snack uh, Kit Kat bar. What is that? I don't. Can you speak English? It's uh, melon. What does that, what does that mean? It's it's Hokkaido melon and mascarpone cheese. Covered in chocolate, coated wafer biscuit bar. It's it's alongside in Japan. Kit Kat has other flavors. Okay, I was waiting for you to tell me oh, which Japan. country this was yeah. being. Developed. So it's the new melon and cheese flavored Kit Kat bar. Also, they have another one that's like I guess just just flying off the shelf. This is only this is only in Japan. Yeah, oh, it's okay. the Japanese strawberry and the Uji matcha. Don't know what that is. Uji it's a type matcha. of tea. Now, for all I mean. In all reality, there are some amazing candies and snacks in Asia, in Korea and Japan. Like, so good. No, really. Now, explain that because uh, I think, like, Korea, especially North Korea, gets laughed at a lot. Um, but and it's, it's a, just explain what you mean by really good candies. Okay, we're talking about – have you ever heard of like – oh, man. I, I don't even know the names of them in English. Yeah, they're not. They're just just pep- say – Have you heard of Pepero? No. Pepero, oh, which pepero. is just like there are these little like wafer sticks dipped in chocolate. They're yes, super yeah, thin. Yeah, 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 mm. So good. Yeah. Okay. And the candy, it's called guaja in Korean. But like these the snacks and candy that they have over there are super addictive. So good and very cheap. Uh, so I, I respect what they bring to the table, but this is just a major whiff and fail <laughs> in the Japanese part with a Hokkaido melon. Yeah. And ma- Mascarpone. Well, well, you, you said they did testing, right? Cheese. Yeah, no, they, these are these are up there. These are pretty good, bro. That, they, I mean, people they, originally they, they say test, they, test, they tested it and they where did they, they test it in Japan? Yeah, yeah, they tested it in Japan. Yeah, they're not going to test it in Japan and release it in the U.S. I think they're going to put out a squid one, a squid um, mascarpone. Oh, yeah, I don't yummy! That. I don't believe you on that one. You don't. Mm-hmm. Have you had squid before, Matt? Um, no. No, really no, I have. Salty. I have. I've had calamari. Really salty. Yeah, yeah. It's. I think it has something to do with the ocean. <laughs> that just, makes a lot of sense. It's just marinating out there mm. in the salty ocean. Mm. It's. Yeah. Um. I really. I'm. I'm not into. I'm not. I like my Kit Kat just straight up Kit and Cat. You mm. know what I mean? What's wrong with chocolate and wafer? Nothing. Nothing. It's what What thing. percentage of cat do you think is in a Kit Kat? I would say thirty-two point zero percent because it's KAT, bro. Oh, sorry, <laughs> you got me on the technicality. Come on, let's go, <laughs> you guys. You're just so killing me. Hey, b- by the way, did you hear about the NFL? The NFL's in trouble. What happened? For what this time? They. Uh, it came out that they've been trying to like skew the data in the National Institute of Health study about brain c- or concussions. Tell the truth. Did you hear that? I, I am aware that that they are under some scrutiny for. How could they do that? Yes, they pulled their money, a. Oh, but they were yeah. trying to unduly influence the study. Hmm. They're in trouble. I think they're going to close the NFL down. Why would they do that, that will never happen. Okay, there will be a mass mutiny across the country if they try and shut down NFL. 
My, I, I was just telling everybody here that a lot of Football. women in my neighborhood uh, aren't going to let their boys play. Oh, I've already decided that uh, no matter how much I try and talk my wife into it, she's never going to let our son play football, which oh, is sad. It but is. But because of media and trends and concussions and injuries and all these things. Oh, dude, by that time, the they'll, have, they'll have technology, man. They'll figure that out. <laughs> How's he, how's, how is your son going to get his brain damage then? I don't know. We got him in T-ball. Oh, there you games go. on Thursday. <laughs> I'm sure oh, that is the best age. The head of the bat or something. Yeah, that's a cool age. Oh, we got to let you guys do your show. What's uh, what's on your show? Holy cow! This is a loaded topic. Of course. If you could take over the Hollywood mentality or the reset button mentality, like you could have another take. Yeah. Any one game in the past calendar year for BYU, no guarantee on the result. Oh, so we're not boy. saying like they're going to win the game. Like you just get to play that one game over again. Which game would you choose and why? Oh, boy. Right? Um, hmm. That's a great question. Uh-huh. There are several. I mean, there are several that we yeah. came up with, like, just off the top of our heads. So you're asking this to everybody. Everybody answer the question. What's the right answer? The right answer is the one that I will give <laughs> in about eight minutes. Uh, oh, my heavens. Brian, you got to defend. You got to defend your view on the show, Brian. Uh, get over. I, do, I, I play defense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you be a defender. <laughs> you bet. You you do your job. I played defense. That's a great question. I don't know. There's so many, huh? Hayden Nielsen yeah. of BYU Baseball for the first time ever as the champion of the West Coast Conference. He will join us. And Tatenda Sumba of BYU Track and Field from Zimbabwe to Provo. How did that happen? Wow. From Z from one Z to the next zoo. From Z to Y. <laughs> That's right? right. That's cool. Why would they do that? <laughs> I'm trying to – well, I mean I think I understand. I don't know. It's uh, it's all good. Guys, uh, it sounds like a great show. Go knock them dead. I know you got to get waxed up, get your makeup on, and uh, – <laughs> Ready to go, man. Get Ryan all rocking, ready to go. Guys, have a great show. Thank you, sir. Knock them dead. Bye. Goodbye. See bye Yeah, Zimbabwe. Jeez. To BYU. Interesting stuff, folks. Interesting stuff. Well, um, you know, it's it's been a good day. We've learned a lot. We've talked about, I think, pretty much everything you can imagine um, on the show, including asparagus. Eat your asparagus. Watch out for your quacks out there. Ben, especially you. Every day you come in, you bring me another life-saving, you know, juice or Nugget berry from the nugget berry tree. By the way, it's not called a nugget berry. It's a chestnut. You know, don't eat it. Well, it says that it takes ninety days for it to like take effect, right? So <laughs> yeah. I, I can't give up until the ninety days has passed. Yeah, dude, you're eating chestnuts, but you're just eating the outer. You know, you got to follow the directions specifically. Okay, as are outlined on the package. Do you have a living will? A what? A living will, just um, so in case you die that we know, and but your body doesn't die, what we're supposed to do. Well, I figure they can just figure out what to do with my bike. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's about it. No, I'll take care of that. My bathtub, my ice cream recipes. <laughs> the vault where your ice cream recipes are stored. Totally. I totally get it. Um, anyway, we got to wrap up the show. We always like to do a hero story and uh, – there's a great story out of Texas. Listen to this. 
This is from Yahoo.com. A Texas man was unknowingly photographed at his job last weekend as customers learned he was hearing impaired and they began writing down their food orders. The picture documenting the very kind act was shared over 21,000 times on Facebook in just a few days. The story is now going viral. Taylor Pope, 20, wrote to the ABC News today. He said, it's so heartwarming to know there are so many good people in the world that lets me uh, and, and that lets me um, feel their inspiration. He said, my job isn't always so fun, but the only thing that makes it worth it is my coworkers and the customers. Pope was working at his job as the cashier and team leader at Whataburger Fast Food Restaurant on May 15th in Denton, Texas, when a stranger, Colby Sanders, was observing nearby. Uh, basically, what everyone would do is they'd come in, they found out he was hearing impaired, and then they would write their order down for him, and then he could hand it in. And he would just smile, got a pen of paper out of his pocket, and they started to write their orders down. It was a really cool way to... Uh, Make sure everybody has a has access to a job and employment and also to know that we're all looking out for each other. That's why we do the show, folks. Life is good. There are wonderful people out there, and you are part of that. Let's take care of each other. Until tomorrow when we join again, go out, make it a great day, and look after each other. We'll talk again tomorrow. Have a great one. <laughs>